Good morning, and welcome to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, coming to you live, if you're listening live, I guess, from the heart of Hollywood, California, from uh, my office at Netflix. So that's kind of exciting and fun and different. Um, so you may hear background noise when I'm talking. Uh, and of course, I'm excited to be here since I missed the last one. Apologies for that. Um, and also excited to uh, share a little bit about um, this past weekend's LA moot, which was uh, which was which was fun and kind of an adventure, both uh, the moot itself and all the um, all the planning and organization that led up to it. Right, Corey? <laughs> oh yeah, that was great. Yeah. No, no, that it was a great. Story. Everything was, all came yeah. together. Yeah, a couple weeks out, it was canceled at one point, and then it was uncanceled. Yeah, it was it was great. So. <laughs> Anyway, uh, let's get started. I am joined, as always, and it's, and it's you know, these days it's been a little tumultuous, so sometimes it's, it's actually been, you know, kind of rare recently to have all three of us, but this morning you have all three of us. I'm joined, as always, by Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, and Trish Lambert, the Tolkien maven. Okay, good morning, everybody. How are you doing, Trish? I was sitting and listening to you talk, Dave. I was sitting and listening to you talk, and I was like... I can picture Dave coming on and going, yeah, so I, sorry I wasn't with you last time. Wally graduated high school. Um, yeah, right, yeah. Or Corey will say, gee, you know, I had to take time off because I became a granddad. <laughs> yeah. The day will come. The day will come. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Only like 2% through the book. And we won't even be to the third age yet in either <laughs> yeah. of those instances. Yeah. Right? Well, I That's mean, true. Not complaining, mind you. We haven't, we haven't ma- – I mean, our original map, wasn't it something – we were planning originally on something like 20 seasons, weren't we? But we're already yeah, oh, yeah, adding here. You know. I know. I know. So, so yeah. Yeah. Anyway, between this and Exploring Lord of the Rings, you're going to have quite the, the, the library of – stuff Corey. oh yeah oh absolutely no this is um uh i remember when people used to say like you know aren't you gonna at some point you know it's been almost 10 years now aren't you gonna run out of things to say about tolkien (laughs) i mean like he only wrote so much after all right and i'm like there are ways around that problem Yeah, <laughs> I tell people, you know, about well, exploring Lord of the Rings is a good example, but I think this happens here with the film. Film too It's like, you know, I say, I say, look, Corey's been teaching Tolkien. He's been talking about years and years and years, and he still learns new stuff. Like the oh, yeah. Weather Weathertop, for example. I oh mean, my you goodness! Said you had a whole new perspective on yeah. it. That for yeah, you know, completely different. And I know we have stuff like that happen here too. So see, I mean, it, Tolkien is the is the gift that never stops giving. That's right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. No, good stuff. Um, well, so uh, our, today we're going to be, this is episode two now of season four. Uh, so we're going to be doing, so last session we did the season overview and today we're doing more detailed season overview. So the primary theme of last discussion was the scope, essentially, trying to figure out exactly what we're going to try to cover and uh, it was the, you know, the, 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 the people who have been uh, threatening to revolt uh, if we tried to just do one season in between uh, the Rising of the Sun and uh, the Battle of Sudden Flame. 
uh, uh, made their big pitch, and we sort of settled on doing splitting it up into two seasons, which I kind of like. The the thing I like about it most now, I still hold to what I've been saying that I think it could be done in one season. I do think it could be done in one season, but the thing that we gain by splitting into two seasons is being able to add more story. Basically, to be able, there are a bunch of things that I would love to be able to get into more. And the number one thing that I'm excited to get into more is more stories of that, like, first generation of men when they arrive in Beleriand. Um, apart from the sort of really fairly briefly told story of Haleth uh, and the death of her family and then her leadership, her very strong leadership of her people. And Haleth, of course, is an awesome character. As I was saying at L.A. Mood, Haleth is like who Eowyn wanted to be when she grew up, right? I mean, Haleth is, uh, you know, the original awesome butt-kicking female character. Um, however, apart from that one anecdote, we get we get almost nothing, really, of what happened to the men. We just get them shuffled around on the map, essentially. You know, we're kind of told where they end up and whom they end up allying themselves with, and then we kind of leave them behind until we get to the later generations. So being able to really kind of dig into the, you know, the characters of, uh, character of Beor, the character of Haleth, um, really incorporating their stories more fully into the stories of uh, Beleriand as we've established them, right? Um, not just having like, and so the people of Bayor settled down here, and you know, uh, the, the you know these folks settled down up there um, uh, in uh, Dor Loman. Oh, by the way, so Dave, I don't think I I told you one change that I suggested there. Not super. So I'm bringing it up now because, of course, it's not going to be in this season as we're doing it. But I had suggested okay. uh, that I want to I want to move Hador Goldenhead back a couple generations um because one of the th- so like the, the 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 three kindreds of men right like they are no like later on you've got the people of Beor right and you've got the people of Haleth and both of them were first generation right Beor came over Haleth was like the first leader of of her of her people but the third you know the people of 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 Malak who become the people of Hador Goldenhead down the road. Like, but that's how they're known, right? They're known as the people of Hador. Like Hador is the sort of signature, uh, leader, you know, uh, sort of house, the founder of the house that, you know, uh, Hurin and, uh, Turin are eventually going to be from. Um, but he's much later chronologically. I mean, he's like many generations later than Beor and, and Haleth. So my thought was to kind of simplify things, um, to have him be first generation so that to have, uh, Hador and Haleth and Beor be like the leaders of those three people in that first generation when they establish themselves, and and so, which just means that we're basically pushing Hador Goldenhead a few generations up the family tree from you know from Hurin uh, and Huor, which seemed to me fine. Like who's gonna who's gonna miss that, right? Uh, so nobody nobody's gonna miss that. That's yeah. fine. Oh, see, actually, now here, here we go. Uh, uh, we say that. Yeah. Now, Marie has a, has a wonderful suggestion. In fact, Marie's suggestion, that's exactly, Marie, how Tolkien would make this change. Uh, uh, she says, what we should do is have an original Hador and then have Hador Goldenhead, the grandfather of Hurin, be named after him. 
Ah, see, now that's it. That's exa- That's of course exactly how we ended up yep. with two Thrors and two Thrains uh, uh, in uh, in the in the lineage of Thorin. Like how you ended up with Thrain the Old because uh, Tolkien made a mistake and just like multiplied Thrains to explain it. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Okay, sure. I, I'm yep. I'm fine with I that. I love it. I'm fine with it's that. Very Tolkien esque. That's very Tolkien esque. But anyway, so so that way we have the House of Hador, and because I, I honestly like for many years I was reading the Silmarillion, and I'm like, why do they call them the House of Hador? Why aren't they called the House of Marak? Because Marak was the guy who like was their leader. With anyway, so we can avoid all of those all of those problems. Um, but uh, anyway. Whatever. Point is, we'll get to dig into those stories a lot more, and and I think that's great. I'm really looking forward to that. And, of course, secondarily, I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to get into the dwarf stories a bit. And we we did some kind of teasing, or at least we did some preliminary discussion, excuse me, of the... uh, the petty dwarf situation, right? Um, and the the possibility of having, you know, the prospect that is, of having uh, meme come at the end of a of a, a story that is actually told, um, rather than one that is only quite vaguely gestured to, which is what we get in the published Silmarillion. Um, I think is really neat. So uh, I, I'd really like to do that too. So, you know, I agree. If we want to add. All of those kinds of things. Plus, of course, we still want to maintain our view of what's going on among the bad guys and and keep uh, keep in touch with our primary uh, background, you know, uh, sort of anti-protagonist Sauron in his trek through the ages here. Um, You know, we don't want to lose track of Sauron this season either. So um, we're going to need to add some material to uh, to keep in touch with him and see what he's up to uh, during this whole time. So. Um, and there's some new characters we're going to need to, to, uh, be working on and stuff like that. So anyway, that's, um, all of this stuff is, is reason enough for me to reconcile myself to the shift, uh, to two seasons, uh, uh, which is good. It's good that I was reconciled to that because, uh, uh, the, the entire, uh, uh, the, the PowerPoint slides that were made up for us are entirely presumed that we are, in fact, <laughs> going ahead with that. So. Yeah, it's good that you're reconciled because you were going to be reconciled. Because you know, it's good that you're reconciled psychologically because yes. you had no choice. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that's that's fine. You know, the will of the people. I'm I'm, I'm willing to submit to that most of the time. Um, I wasn't. Yeah, I wonder if I... in the original schedule. As far as I can tell, this is just going to last forever anyway. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. For The Hobbit, you know? Could be what Peter Jackson went through. (laughs) A revolt of the people on the discussion boards? No, 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 a decision to, you know, expand. To To expand, right, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe Fran just handed him a three-movie script outline. He was like, oh, I guess we're doing this. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, all I can say is, uh, if um, uh, if if Peter Jackson had uh, Marie handing him his uh, plot outlines, things would have gone much better. Um, but anyway, uh, so, so let us let us let us move forward. Um, so 
Uh, one uh, quick announcement I want to do before we get too uh, deep into the details here of the new season four outline. Uh, Magnolia Moot is coming up soon in just over a week. So a week from today, I will be traveling again and I will be uh, headed down to Charlotte, North Carolina for Magnolia Moot, which is going to be a lot of fun. So if you're anywhere uh, in the, you know, down there in the south and can drive to Charlotte uh, for the day, you should totally join us because it's going to be awesome. So uh, go to signumuniversity.org uh, and you will see, if you scroll down just a little bit, uh, the Magnolia Moot uh, link where you can register and come and join us. And uh, it's still even possible if you want to give a paper, uh, you can still submit proposals through today. They close today, November 2nd. Or, yeah, it is November 2nd. That's right. Um, today is November 2nd and it's the day that they close. So... Uh, you are welcome to uh, to do that. And, Marie, I believe you're right that I have forgotten to share my screen. Hang on. So the people on Twitch are seeing my slides, which is the first slide that I've shown, but the people on GoToWebinar are not. There you are. Okay. Excellent. Thank you, Marie, for reminding me of that. Okay, so... That's the announcement. Don't forget, Magnolia Moot is coming up. We had an awesome time at LA Moot last week. We had a great film film session. In fact, um, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, our film film discussion that Dave and I had was recorded, uh, and we're going to post that actually on our website. Now, this is um, this is not. Uh, there was very little that we said that was uh, uh, is going to be you know news to those of you who have been following along uh, all the way through. Um, but it will be especially useful, I think, for folks who are kind of interested in jumping in but haven't listened through uh, or watched the entire first three seasons uh, leading up to it. We did a, we did a, uh, we ended up doing a pretty good overview and discussion of sort of what the overall goals of the project are and what we're and what we're working on. So I thought that was pretty cool, uh, and we're gonna uh, we're gonna we're gonna. Uh, post that. I, th I think we're going to link to it on the main film, uh, some film page on the Mythgard website. So it's probably where that's going to uh, end up living. So that'll but, be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a couple interesting discussions and insights in there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, Phil, so we might add it to the podcast feed as well. Um, that might happen. Yeah. Um, Oh, we'll, I'll see how it ends up being sort of packaged. And it wasn't really done with that kind of publication in mind, but maybe we'll we'll see. We'll see what we can make of it. Um, yeah. All right. Cool. So let's get started. So today, uh, as I say, we're going to be looking. We're going to be thinking through things uh, more in detail. And there are a couple different ways that we can look at this. Um, one is looking at this kind of episode. I want to do more mapping out episode by episode to make a to make a plan so that we can have things laid out for us as we go through to discuss the season episode by episode. But of course, in doing that, there are also several different plot lines that we need to think about how we're going to develop. Because um, I personally, my sense of this, you know, in the thinking that I've been doing a, a, about this, I think the plot outline is going to be kind of complicated. I sort of suspect that a bunch of these episodes we're going to be kind of developing as we go along because there's... Well, and this is both kind of a fun complication of season four, but I also suspect a challenge of season four. Season four is going to be, oh, there's going to be a lot of talking that goes on in season four, right? It's going to be a lot of sort of politics, 
fewer big events, you know, fewer battles. And, you know, like, so we've had things like the departure from Valinor, the kinslaying, you know, the, 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 the battle, you know, with the green elves and the dwarves and the orcs, uh, you know, and the Sindar and, uh, you know, the burning of the ships, you know, there's, there's been like major things. So we could make an outline that said like, okay, these major things are happening. And then obviously we have to be, uh, working forward the other, you know, the different threads that we have, you know, uh, uh, as we sort of go along the simple list of major events that occur in this season seem to me to be significantly fewer. Um, so I think that's going to be interesting. And I, my suspicion is that our episode outline is going to be a little bit more fluid than it often has been. Um, right. Cause we can't organize it around like this is the episode with this battle. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. instead what we're going to have is several threads that are going to be going on over multiple episodes and we may, I think we may end up kind of changing our minds about how we want to pace that and how we want that to develop, uh, at least during like particular segments of this season. So we'll see. We'll see. But first we need to talk about overarching themes. Obviously, uh, you know, we've, uh, I think, done a um, done a pretty good job um, in uh, thinking through, you know, each each. Um, season so far has been, you know, interested in a couple fairly major themes. Uh, and, uh, so these are the sort of suggestions or thoughts about themes for this time. Uh, the good guys have to learn <clears throat> that they are stronger together. Um, but unlike season one, which was of course also very interested in cooperative action. Um, but in season one, the themes focused on creative collaboration and unity and diversity. And now we're dealing with issues of forgiveness and working past grievances. Yeah, that's a, a, a really big deal. Forgiveness is going to be, I think, a really interesting um, sub-theme of this season. Um, forgiveness and the lack of forgiveness. Uh, and there's... Hmm... I wonder. See, I'm tempted to say I could even see that itself, like the issue of forgiveness itself. Because, I mean, yes, working together and like we need to cooperate in order to, uh, you know, to be able to defeat Morgoth, to be able to hold Morgoth in leaguer is uh, clearly going to be an element. But I'm tempted to take forgiveness itself as the central and primary theme. Um, and I wonder... If how well that will work, I wonder if uh, and, and and when I say how well that will work, what I'm wondering is what kind of what kind of resolution can we bring that to? What does it lead to? How is that theme resolved over the course of this episode? It's not like we'd like totally finish themes earlier on, but you know if if we're sort of asking a question persistently we need to have at least maybe more than one but we need to have some to be working up towards answers uh to that um and i can see how forgiveness works as a theme especially at the beginning of the season right i mean we, we you know we start obviously with the issue with the tension among the noldor right you know we we have uh we ended season three uh 
on both a literal and figurative cliffhanger, right? Uh, literal in Mithros's case, figurative in uh, uh, the the situation of not really knowing if the army of Fingolfin is going to be marching on the army of Feanor, right? And and you know the Feanorians. Um, and whether open battle was going to result between the two of them. So we start with that really tense situation and the great need for forgiveness there um, uh, between those two. But then, of course, we have the whole kinslaying thing, and that's a major plot in this season. Uh, that is the Sindar and Thingol eventually finding out the truth about the kinslaying, and now we have this uh, schism opening up between the Sindar and the Noldor, and the, there's you know need for for forgiveness there too, or they're going to be split and they're going to be divided. Um, where do we? Um, uh, where do we sort of? lead up to? What is the... Some of the final things that are going to be happening in this season are like the move into Gondolin and the establishment of Nargothrond. Um, the, I mean, that certainly hardly serves, with at least explicitly seem to serve, as any kind of conclusion to this particular theme. Um... Yeah, David Attlee makes a really interesting point that uh, he says, Elvish memory seems particularly poorly suited to forgiveness. The pain will remain perpetually fresh, and we can see that in the ban uh, uh, of the Noldor from Menegroth. Yes, David, I agree with that. Now, at the same time, of course, like forgetting and forgiving aren't the same, right? Um, and elves... So the, the, there's no question of like... It's just healing. And, and David, I do think that one of the things that we can emphasize is because of the nature of Elvish memory, as you're saying, um, I think it would be fun to really use this as an opportunity to explore, as we've done in other ways, the fundamental differences between Elvish psychology and human psychology, right? Um, pain diminishes over time for humans, right? It's how we are in general. Um, to show that being less the case with elves. Um, and, you know, because of the nature of how they experience the world, having them uh, have a, a different challenge. Uh, because, again, it's not, it's not like forgiving and forgetting are the same, right? They're not the same. Um, you f can forgive without forgetting it's not a prerequisite right um but yet if you're the 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 clearer and more present the memory of the wrong is the harder it's going to be uh to forgive so yeah yeah now tony i agree the founding of nargothrond and gondolin can be the way that I, the, the, my initial thought, Tony, there is that we can see the founding of Nargothrond and Gondolin both as kind of two different models for what sort of starting afresh looks like, right? These are sort of the new kingdoms. These are the, um, the, 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 the great kingdoms that, you know, it almost says you should do this, right? And so they have this vision of these new, these new realms. Um, and Turgon's. Turgon creates, well, of course, there are, Tony, as you point out, uh, uh, both Sindar and Noldor uh, commingled in greater 
uh, uh, in greater numbers than anywhere else, we're told, in Nevrost, who then moved to Gondolindrim. So the Gondolindrim are a greater and more successful kind of Sindar, Noldor, melting pot than anywhere else. And But then when we think about that in conjunction with the isolationism of Gondolin, and I think in particular of the way in which Turgon seems to be in a sense, more kind of backward-looking that is backward-looking to Valinor. I'm thinking of his, like, the tree of silver and gold, right, that he makes, and the little, like, uh, you know, Gondolin as sort of scale model of Tyrion upon Tuna, right, uh, on its little hill, in, you know, with Tomb Laden there. Um, my thought is that Turgon's model for healing... Right for healing the hurts of the elves and the divisions among the elves is to be like, let us retreat to our little elvish utopia, right? And let's recreate, uh, let's recapture together. Um, let's forget things. Maybe he's more about sort of forgetting like what has been happening. I don't know. Um, but let's go back and let's like recapture Valinor, right? Let's build our little mini, like, you know, this is this is Valinor East. Right, um, and we're going to separate ourselves from everything, and we're going to be out of. And so, like, we'll, we will cut ourselves off from any evil influence that could come to mar our. You know, there will be no second darkening, right? Uh, uh, metaphorical darkening. They don't have literal light, obviously, from their trees, but um, no evil shall come to uh, to sully our perfect little, uh, you know, uh, valley paradise again. Um, this is what this is what moving forward looks like. Moving forward is moving back, right? We are we're reestablishing our little mini Valinor, and we're going to live there, and that's what it's going to be like, right? That's sort of Turgon's vision of what healing the wounds of the elves sort of looks like, right? He can't do it for everybody. No, you know, lots of other people aren't cooperating, uh, but um, but but he can, you know, they can they can do this, right? Uh, and um, Finrod would have a different vision. And one of the things, uh, uh, Finrod's vision is more um, cosmopolitan, in a sense, in that, like, Turgon's is a little elvish paradise, right? He's got the Sindar and the Noldor working together and everything. Finrod establishes relationships with the dwarves. Right, I mean the Nauglamir, right? Uh, and we have so we have him, get, and Nargothrond was a dwarvish place. So we we have to have Finrod interacting with the dwarves. It's not going to work if he doesn't, right? Uh, so having him work, and we also know that although it's not going to happen now in this season, um, he's going to be the one who meets the 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 men and brings them in, right? He's the force behind the integration of men into Elvish society. Um, so this idea of Finrod. Uh, Finrod's vision being more like uh, like let us bring together all the free peoples, not just not just the elves. So he's less focused on focused on you know let's bring together the Noldor and the Sindar and and make it work together. Um, he's kind of thinking bigger, right? Uh, so we could we could do that as. Turgon being enclosed, right? Turgon being like, let's let's shut out everything else and let's just focus on you know you know uh, living the, the 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 perfect life here. And Finrod being focused on reaching outward, right? His center of power is still secret. I mean that we and we still have to do that. It's not like he's um, setting himself as the center of like an open empire or something like that. But um, but he's focused on reaching out to these other kingdoms, whereas uh, 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 Turgon is focused on on shutting in. Uh, 
I think that would be a sort of a sensible way to do this. And both of them could see themselves as in this sense, sort of forces of reconciliation, right? Um, uh, you could even, we could even do Turgon. Uh, Turgon is a voice of reconciliation who feels like he's being ignored, right? Like he can't get any traction with everybody else. Like every single is, you know, being a pain. The Feanorians are beyond a pain. Uh, you know, even his own siblings are like not really wholehearted. They're not willing to go out. And so he's like, okay, you know what? We're, let's just, we're going to do it ourselves, right? We're going to, um, uh, we're going to, you know, David, that's a really good way to, uh, uh, think about it. David Attlee says that the Gondolindrum are kind of like elvish monks, um, cutting themselves off from the world in order to study the greatest goods of the elvish life. Yes, building a, a little separate community that is designed to be separated from the world, um, but also in a sense not out of touch with the world, uh, in a sense being um, to create, to, to make a, to make a, a you know, a, a a society, right? Which is like how things are, how things should be, how things are supposed to be. Um, exactly, Tony. So the people of Nargathron would be more like friars. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that I want, that I want to go too far uh, with that parallel, but yeah, yeah. Something like that. Uh, engaging the world more actively. Yes. Um, uh, and then yet, yeah, David, I mean, I think inescapably we're going to uh, have to examine the morality of isolationism and it's going to become, I think, more and more questionable. I want to make this is going to be tricky, right? Because, of course, one of the other characters that we have here, um, what in one sense, one of the obvious kind of opposite poles from Turgon uh, in the founding of Gondolin is Aeol. Right. Uh, and of course, especially with, you know, the Maeglin connection between them, how, how, you know, Aeol and Turgon are kind of, you know, antagonistic in a sense. But of course, they're also parallel in a sense. Right. Both of them are isolationist. So having Aeol there is like the dark foil of Turgon, I think, is going to be kind of cautionary from the beginning. Right. Um, and I think that we can do some kind of interesting things with that, really. Um, I don't want to. I wouldn't want to make Gondolin look simply shady from the beginning, right? Uh, I I think if we if we de- if we have to be careful to make sure that Turgon and the Gondolindrim don't just look like snobs or something, like well we're gonna go off and be elitist and live in a commune and uh, you know have the perfect society and ignore all of you losers, right? Um, they could look like that, but I don't. Uh, want them to look like that. Um, what they're building is great. They're building one of the greatest things of the first age. And it is, um, as uh, somebody was saying, but I've lost it already, um, the, it, it, it's, the, it's the hope of the elves, right? I mean, it, uh, it's going to be one of the great... Um, yeah, uh, David Attlee was saying that. Um, yes, it is on the one hand, it's the great elvish hope, right? The, the, there is a sense in which Turgon is is living the dream. Like he accomplishes what most of the other elves like try to accomplish and fail at. And Gondolin will become like this emblem, right, of uh, successful resistance, essentially, against Morgoth as things get darker and darker. Uh, so I want 
to make sure that Gondolin is great, right? Uh, that 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 Gondolin is um, is really ideal, uh, actually. Um, but from the beginning, I think there need to be some kind of questions. There needs to be a sense of cost, right, to cutting themselves off and of danger to cutting themselves off. And as we get further on in the story of Gondolin, we see that cost coming due, right? Um, both in the Arathel situation and in the Maeglin situation, but also in Turgon's own choices, right? Culminating in Turgon's decision to not um, obey Olmo's command, right? When Olmo's message is brought in by Tuor and his refusal to leave, right? That sort of, that is the fall uh, of of Turgon, and it needs to not come out of nowhere. It shouldn't come out of nowhere. It won't be coming out of nowhere because that danger has been there all the way through. Uh, so it's kind of a delicate thing, I think, that we need to do with Gondolin there. Um, but uh, exactly, Chris, uh, the isolationism looking more and more questionable as time as time goes on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So... So yeah, thinking about forgiveness, if if this season, if we think about the end goal of this season, like uh, that is just like plot wise, right? Where we're getting, where we're building to. The reason I'm focusing here on Gondolin and Nargothrond so much in thinking about these this overview uh, right now is that this our projected new season this is where it's going to like this is the um uh this is where we're likely to want the focus to end up i mean we're thinking of of having a you know an action sequence at the very end in the final in the final episode um uh we had talked about having the first this season season 4 end in that episode when Glaurung escapes, right? So we have the first attack of Glaurung, which foreshadows the attack of sudden, the, the battle of sudden flame. Um, so we have the sort of warning shot of the battle of sudden flame happening at the end. And that's the end of this season. But in a sense, that's not really the culmination of this. Of course, it seems to me that the real, um, in a sense, the real sort of thematic finale of, um, of, the, of what we're building up this season is Gondolin and Nargothrond. Um, so yeah, having them be the two lots, there's lots of strife and difficulty everywhere else. Right. And we'll see a lot of failure. Um, and that's maybe <clears throat> one of the ways in which we can kind of think about it thematically. Again, I, I keep coming back to this, the concept of forgiveness, which seems so central to what's happening. The need for it is so obvious uh, in all of our major plot lines. Um, it really fits with almost everything, with the, the obviously the, the Noldor plot lines, the Sindar plot lines, the dwarf plot lines. It, it works really for all of those things. Um, and uh, if we think about building towards... At the end of the season, what we will have will be a bunch of different models, right? Some, several different models for what unforgiveness looks like. Like, here is, 
Here's one example of what the failure to forgive brings. Ale is one example. Perhaps the most extreme example of the failure of forgiveness, right? Thingol will be another example of the failure of forgiveness. Karanthir will be another example of the failure of forgiveness. Um, uh, And then we have a few examples of at least partial success of forgiveness, right? Um, Fingen, right? Uh, uh, and Mithros even, to some extent. Um, and then we have, uh, um, we have obviously Gondolin and Nargothrond being the two best examples, but, um, but, uh, still possibly, you know, sort of flawed or or kind of troubling in different ways. Uh, Now, Tony, I agree that the themes of the concepts of forgiveness and of reconciliation are not exactly the same. Um, And that's actually one of the things that I would be really interested to explore. Um, And it seems to me that that I would want to build up because, of course, like, I would say forgiveness is much deeper than reconciliation. You can be reconciled to somebody and there still not be forgiveness, right? Um, and that's what I would like to play. The, the, the first initial push in the, fir- in the beginning of the season has got to just be towards reconciliation, right? Like, hey, everybody, let's not fight with each other, right? That's step one is not fighting. Um, let's not have the Noldor dissolve into combat and have the Feanorians and the and the people of Fingolfin fighting it out, right? Let, let's not do that. Okay, all right, we succeed in not doing that. Hey, let's not have reprisals between the Sindar and the Noldor, right? Okay, can we not? So the feast that we get, right, uh, in, uh, in which I think we're planning in episode five, as we'll see, um, that reconciliation happens, right? This is the feast of reconciliation. We're 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 good. Everyone's like, hooray, peace in Beleriand, and we're all going to work together. But that doesn't mean that forgiveness has really happened, right? And I think that what I would like to then show in the second half of the season is there's f- we need to do more than just agree not to fight. We need to do more than just that. So long as there is a lack of forgiveness. Uh, unless we are really willing to forgive each other and move past the bad things that have happened in the past, um, uh, then we uh, um, we're like the the reconciliation. There's still going to be too many cracks that can open up again. Or we, and and so what we need to be showing, of course, is uh, the bad guys exploiting the cracks that remain when you have reconciliation without forgiveness. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, now Karita, I agree. You can also forgive someone and not be reconciled to them. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, as Karita points out, forgiving someone who is not a safe person is still worth doing, uh, but you don't let them, you know, house it or babysit for you. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, and I think that we can kind of... I think it would be interesting to show that in some cases, too. Um
Yeah. Here's one of the positive things. We have lots of characters, right? We have a large cast of characters in this episode, in this season, uh, which means we have the potential to illustrate lots of different perspectives, right? Uh, so, Karita, we can absolutely have that. I think it would be really fun to have a character, a Sindar perspective character, who is willing to forgive but still very cautious against working together. I would nominate Melian for this. She urges forgiveness. I'm thinking Thingol's decree against the Noldor is the, our first example of Thingol not listening to his wife, which will become a trend, right? Um, I'm thinking she would urge forgiveness. Now, Hakan Kirden is another Kirden is my second choice. Um Kirden is my second choice. Um he being outside Doriath is going to be working probably working with the Noldor more directly. Um and I th- would think that I would think that Kirden um yeah, Kirden actually collaborating with the Noldor Marie exactly. Um so maybe what we end up getting there, again, are sort of three different perspectives, right? Thingol uh, won't... Uh, Thingol does neither, right? He won't reconcile with them and he won't forgive them. Melian urges forgiveness, but she still keeps the girdle up, right? She still is 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 fine with not allow, not allowing them in. She's not keen to mingle with them or have them come into Doriath and mingle uh, with them. Um, again, that's Thingol's decree, but I think she might support that. But urge, you know, urge. So he, when I say we get an example of him not listening to his wife, um, it would be early stages of that, right? So she and he agree on like no let's uh, yeah we're fine with uh, having Feanorians here seems like a bad idea in fact maybe even she has a uh a, a foretelling right um a premonition that Feanorians coming to Doriath will be bad right we don't want Feanorians in Doriath um but uh, but anyway so um so but where so where Thingol doesn't listen to his wife is not in actions like he's not taking actions that she doesn't approve uh, or that she counsels him actively against but she is trying to uh, urge him that it is important to forgive like he needs to get past this he can't just go on carrying a grudge for what happened Um, but he does right Um, but Círdan yes being the one who both forgives and uh, 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 reconciles with the Noldor would work for me. Um, Melian's forgiveness of the Noldor can be sort of demonstrated by Galadriel's coming and living there. Um, we'll get to Galadriel. Much more on Galadriel later. She needs to be a pretty important figure in this season in some ways. And yeah, Oakwig, Cyrus isn't a good candidate. No. Um, yeah, Cyrus is a bad example, right? Uh, he neither forgives nor reconciles. Uh, in fact, Cyrus can really be an active spokesperson 
uh, for the bad attitude that Thingol has, right? Um, certainly, uh, at the very least, not that we want to show Cyrus as if he's, like, controlling or manipulating Thingol, but he should definitely be a very strong yes-man uh, to Thingol when Thingol is acting and speaking rashly towards the Noldor. Uh, I would think that Cyrus would be all about that. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think this is... Uh, I think this works. The more I... Um, the more I think about it, the more I like it. And in the end... In the end, it's going to be a bit of a failure. That is, we're not going to see forgiveness... Um, we're going to see comparatively few examples of real forgiveness and of real repentance, right? Because, of course, that's the other side, is that you need to be penitent. Like, you need to, to, to really repent of what you did uh, in seeking forgiveness, right? Um, so, Caranthir, I was talking, I was speaking of Caranthir before, and I, I, that was being a little bit um, uh, sloppy uh, in my terminology there. Caranthir, of course, doesn't really have anything to forgive, um, but his um, his attitude shows his lack of penitence, right? Um, he's not sorry for what they did. Um, and I agree, Marie, the Feanorians in general aren't penitent. With the possible... I think that we need to show Mithros and Maglor as being more penitent than the rest, right? But certainly... Um, and... Amras should be the most penitent. Yeah? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, Hakan says uh, some like Mithras and Amras don't forgive themselves. Yes. Which is, of course, a, another... Uh, important element of this whole equation, right? Um, yes, if we show Amras as haunted by the past, right? We ha- I wanted him sort of breaking with Feanor, right? Uh, and being the first to see the destructiveness of the oath and the direction that his father has taken them. But that doesn't mean... um, Yeah. I could see... How can I see it going a couple different ways, right? Amras could either be the most penitent, the only truly penitent of the Feanorians, or he could be the example of Hakan, as you suggest, sort of self-loathing, not forgiving himself, right? Uh, most bitter. But of course, this puts him straight back down the suicidal path that you guys keep wanting me not to put him down, right? Um, yeah, the voice of judgment. Yeah, ju- judgment of the others, right? Yeah, he could be the one who who is always rising up and condemning everybody else. Uh, but you've got to think that, like, Caranthir and Kelogorm aren't going to put up for that or Kurofin are going to put up with that for very long, right? Um, I mean, I'm not saying they're going to have him killed, but, uh, I mean, especially since he's the youngest brother at this point. Um, 
would they just boot him? I mean, like at at, <clears throat> at some point they're going to start stop in, inviting him to the family barbecues, right? Uh, I'm just trying to think of how how he would fit. Could he become isolated? Could he, in fact, become? We could make him into a a, a sort of a um. make him into a sort of a hermit-like figure, right? In fact, we could make him a kind of a third... To, yeah, Nick, exactly. Nick is thinking about Aeol here. Um, Aeol, Turgon, and Emras as three who are seeking isolation in different ways and for different reasons, right? But all of them kind of exploring both the positives and the negatives. <clears throat> Yeah, it kind of seems to me. It's hard for me to see with the trajectory that we have Amros. You know, given the character traje- tra- trajectory we've given Amros, I can't imagine him not ending up on his own, right? I mean, the only thing that would make any sense is that he remains with Mithros because Mithros is the only one who is. You know, I could see him remaining with Mithros and being like Mithros's conscience, essentially, right? But Mithros is not willing to make the final step, right? As we see, like, what is going to end up leading uh, Mithros to steal the Silmarils, right, at the very end, after the, after the War of Wrath, is still that, like, vest- like he, he still, he does not fully repent, right? He is not, he will not turn away from his, uh, from the oath like Amros is. Amros is all in. He's, he's done, Right. Uh, since the death of his brother and his condemnation of his father, he's done, he's still bound by the oath. He still swore it. Right. And he's still kind of hosed, but he repents of it. He turns away from it. Um, so. Yeah. What's. Yeah, I like that. Um He can still serve as, like, the conscience of the Feanorians, but he's the conscience of the Feanorians who gets consulted less and less by the Feanorians, right? Um, pretty quickly, Caranthir, Caligorm, and Curufin want nothing to do with him, right? Um, Maglor can visit him most. Uh, uh, Mithros will still check on him, you know, send folks to check on him and stuff. And we can have... I think a, a kind of an interesting scene when Mithros is going to recruit Amros to help him and to join with him again when it comes time for the League of, uh, uh, you know, for the uh, for the Alliance of of Mithros leading up to the Near Nith Arnoidiad, so he can be involved there. Um, but there's not too much for him to do between now and then, so having him kind of living in isolation makes some sense to me. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I, I think the conscience of the, um, the, being the conscience of the Feanorians could get a little, that that's definitely going to get a little tiresome after a while, <laughs> because there's going to be centuries of him saying, hey guys, you really think we should be doing this? And them not listening. Right. Yeah, it's a thankless job being the conscience of the Feanorians. Uh, I'm kidding. Yeah, but if he's not present with them, you know, uh, uh, you know, then. Right, yeah. It would be easier. He can yeah. be the he can be the the symbolic conscience of the Feanorians, right? 
Right. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's um, really not a- really. There's really there's really not actionable. No one actually <laughs> listens to him. Right. But, right. But if but if somebody asks. Do you guys have conscience? They point at him and say, yeah, yeah, he lives over there somewhere. I haven't seen him in centuries, but yeah, he's there. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we totally do. We totally, that position is filled, right? Yes. Um, yeah. Okay. That, yeah, that's his job. We don't have to worry about having you know, exactly. any of our, right. just, he just does it. That liberates the rest of us. Um, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, When would we want him... Well, we'll have to see how the Fanorians develop over time. See, this is one example of, like, when does the separation of Amros come? I could see us doing it near the very beginning. I could see us doing it near the very end of the season, on almost any time in between. Like, I'm not really sure. We'll just kind of... This is one of the things that I mean when I say I feel like the season outline is a little more indefinite. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we, yeah, I don't think we need to, to assign it to a particular. Epi- there isn't like a clear sort of like, oh, it belongs in this episode uh, at this point. I think we'll, I think I imagine we'll notice the moment when it arrives. Like, oh, this is the perfect. This time. is the time. Yeah, exactly. I'm kind of hoping that we'll be inspired in exactly that kind of way. Because uh, we ought to give him a chance to like dissuade them from some bad behavior. Yes. Yes. Yeah, he has to establish himself as the the conscience of the of the Fanorians, right? Um, who is not listened to in general by the Fanorians, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, he, they can't ignore him if he doesn't say anything. <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, now I agree. Like having him always around, always saying the same thing, and always being ignored will get tiresome very quickly, uh, and even the viewers will just get irritated with him, and we don't want that. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, we do need to have it have that dynamic establish itself and play itself out, and then and then we can we can separate him. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So I think this works. Of course, the story. One of the neat things about thinking about forgiveness and reconciliation, right, is one of this gives us the opportunity to put a very appropriate and appealing spotlight on the relationship between Celeborn and Galadriel. Um, and we'll come back to that. But of course, being the most prominent in the season, not the only, but the most prominent in the season of the Noldor-Sindar marriages that we get, um, you know, in one sense, right, this season is going to be famous for its marriages. Um, uh, the primary being Galadriel and Celeborns. Um, and the fact that that's a Noldor-Sindar marriage. I, 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 and that in the context of, and you know, in Doriath, right, where we've got a major forgiveness issue and where the kinslaying thing is, is the biggest scandal, you know, the center of the kinslaying scandal, right? Um really makes their reconciliation um, and marriage together more significant in that way. Okay. All right. I think this works. Um, So the villains then, uh, sowing division and isolating their enemies, 
Yes. We'll talk a little bit more about the what the villains do, but I think this is the season when Sauron is really going to come into his own, right? Um, we've been looking at, the, you know, in the last couple seasons, we've been looking at the, the conflict between Gothmog and Sauron, right? And essentially it's been one between force and guile, right? Force and cunning. Gothmog is the thug and Sauron uh, is uh, the wily plotter. Um, here, Gothmog, it's not time for Gothmog, right? Gothmog's uh, uh, star is going to be declining in this season. And I think we have the obvious opportunity for that. Um, you know, the glorious battle of the Dagor Aglareb, that's going to be Gothmog, right? Uh, the, this whole, like, the, the Dagor Aglareb is the great, is the sort of the next great attempt to wipe out the elves. And it's the one which proves to Morgoth, you know, for one, once and for all, that orcs are not capable of destroying the elves. Like, no army of orcs, howsoever big, is going to work, is going to be effective in destroying the Noldor. That's the conclusion that Morgoth is going to come to. And I'm thinking Gothmog is the entire moving force behind that battle. I'm, I'm thinking Sauron already sees it. I'm thinking Sauron is there saying, hey, um, let's not attack. This is stupid. Like, we know they're going to beat the orcs. Like, the orcs can't stand up to them. And Gothmog is like, nonsense. We shall pound and crush them. And Sauron's like, dude, let's not do this. And Gothmog is like, crush. So they attack and they lose hideously. Right? They get out. Sauron supports Gothmog because he knows it's going to destroy Gothmog with Morgoth. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah. That's even better. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Gothmog! I think that's a brilliant idea. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you take all your orcs and go smash them? Right. Um, right. Yeah. Gothmog smash. Goth Gothmog smash. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So. Gothmog loses, and so this is, and 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 then Sauron is like, so. Uh, plan B, right? Uh, let's be cunning about this. And so Sauron then would be behind the stratagem to capture the elves, uh, uh, mess them up, and release them as spies, right? Uh, and to... Because this whole situation of like, hey, there's lots of tensions and distrust among the elves. Let's expand and exploit that, right? That's, uh, that's Sauron all over. Um, and I think that we can show both Sauron and uh, Thurin Gwethel being very directly involved in this kind of thing. Um, yeah. No, David, Sauron wouldn't be able to advocate it openly. He would be advocating it secretly. Um, I would think he would be egging Gothmog on or maybe using some, uh, 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 you know, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know how sort of sly and cunning we want to make him like if he's you know using reverse psychology in private on Gothmog and getting you know but he would manipulate Gothmog into doing the wrong thing um so that with the intention of him looking good by contrast which he would which he would definitely do um yeah yeah um Hakan says we need some kind of build up to the Dagor Aglareb to make the victory uh, some kind of surprise. Hakan, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking we can maybe the Sauron knows it's not going to work, 
or Sauron really suspects it's not going to work. And we know Sauron suspects it's not going to work. But the elves think it will, right? So we can have some of the elves be like... The good guys are worried that because this will be the first time that they have really confronted a full battle. Like they, they, they can be thinking like, look, okay, the forces that we, the Feanorians defeated at the very beginning, that was only a small portion of the, of, of, you know, Sauron's or of Morgoth's creatures, right? It's, it's, uh, it's going to be way, way, way worse than that. And we're all divided in this. So there can be a lot of hand wringing among the good guys. Right. Especially like, come on, people, we have to get together as long as we're divided. And you've got Fingolfin up there in the north. Right. Fingolfin being like, oh, man, like, are the Feanorians even going to help? And now the Sindar are completely useless. And what on earth is going on here? How are we going to we're going to get swept away? They're going to come out here and they're going to be Balrogs and it's going to be terrible. Right. And then they win and they win handily. Right. And so it can be a surprise like the good guys can can be surprised uh, and very pleased. Uh, at the uh, um, at the at the results, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Maria is reminding us of uh, the Fanorians, like Mithros's capture, right, and how uh, the Fanorians who were with Mithros were uh, thoroughly defeated, um, and so maybe he can, maybe he. Remember, we unveiled trolls at that point, right? We had the the reveal of trolls as kind of the next stage in the uh, research and development, right, by Morgoth. Um, So we had the troll guard of uh, Sauron uh, taking captive Mithros and destroying a lot of the Feanorians. So, I mean, I'm thinking their fears are based on what they what they don't know right first of all like okay those trolls like that was bad and who knows how many of them they're going to be maybe we're going to face thousands and thousands of trolls maybe that was just the first step maybe there's going to be something else like we didn't expect the trolls like we beat the orcs pretty well and we didn't expect the trolls and maybe there's going to be something else and of course there is going to be something else right the dragons but they don't know it yet and they're not going to see it yet um so i do think that in the end um i do think that in the end they are going to be fearing that the enemy is going to be stronger than he is. And then they're going to be surprised and it's going to build some false confidence in everybody, which is going to have different effects on different people, right? Some are going to be really cocky as a result. Uh, uh, For some, it will be a a sign of, you know, like this is what unity can bring. And, and, you know, we, so we can have some both positive and negative outcomes uh, to that. But, um, but I don't think it, it will be difficult for us to have folks like rightly nervous about, um, what Morgoth has up his sleeve there. Um, Yeah. Uh, Nick is wondering if it would give the impression, uh, give the elves the impression that orcs will be stronger than last time. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, this idea of we could even have, let's see, who would be the. We know that Morgoth is going to be like dispersing his power among his creatures, right? Maybe some of the Noldor, maybe somebody among the Noldor knows about this or speculates about this. Who would be like the philosopher slash theologian of them? Turgon? 
Um, who is it who would be able to kind of theorize about this and explain, like, okay, Morgoth has been here. He's going to be Finrod, Tony suggests. Finrod is the philosopher. Yeah, no, Marie's right about that, too. Okay, Finrod, fine. That, so, seems, that, that seems appropriate. Yeah. Turgon, I think, is a, 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 a reasonable alternative. But, yeah, Finrod really is the philosopher, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if Finrod explains how this works, right? If Finrod can explain to everybody and therefore conveniently the viewers as well, (laughs) 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 Um, that good old exposition. Yeah, just a little bit of exposition there. Never hurt anybody, and uh, that Morgoth can disperse his power, and that therefore we have every reason to believe that not only are like greater and greater evils going to come upon us, but like the creatures that we've already seen are likely to become greater and more powerful as time goes on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, Nick, no, I, I don't think Finrod is wrong. Uh, here's, here's what I'm thinking, Nick. I said, there are going to be a bunch of different reactions to the Dagor Aglareb, right? Um, Here's one reaction I think should happen. I think that there should be some among the elves who are saying, okay, that was too easy. That was like suspiciously easy. Uh, There's something else going on here, right? Um, So that's what I'm thinking. And, And I'm thinking maybe Finrod is one of those who says, okay, we won. I do not think that this is an indication of what's to come. I still stand by my theories that there is worse coming. And of course there is, right? Glaurung the dragon is going to be an illustration of this. Um, And by the way, I don't, I think maybe we should actually think about having the orcs increase in strength over the course of time. Like, because Morgoth is in fact investing them with more and more of his power. So I think we might want to leave room. Um, we had our first orc invasion right under Bulldog back in season three. And I think if uh, we might want to leave ourselves room to have the orcs become like larger and fiercer, at the very least, we can show them be more and more effectively armored and armed uh, as the seasons go on. So that, um, you know, by the time we like the orcs who are fighting, you know, Denethor, uh, uh, you know, and the ants there uh, on and and uh, what's his name, Maglor. We we got those orcs fighting them, and then so then by the time we get up to you know the orcs in the Battle of Sudden Flame, the orcs are like they've upgraded, right? They're 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 increased. By the time we get to the orcs that are fighting Turin, right? Um, uh, and you know, so by the time we get to the near knife, things are. Things are things are different, and then yeah, Nick. By the time we get to the War of Wrath, they are I, 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 um, not quite Warhammer orc in strength and power, but yeah, they can be very they can they can be greater. I mean, remember the War of Wrath is going to be is not going to be a cakewalk for the good guys, right? So yes, showing them. Um, yeah, Marie says Angband should have cutting edge military technology at all times. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that we can, uh, uh, we can, we can, we can kind of do that, but still they're not, um, they're no, they're no, so, so again, Finrod isn't wrong. 
Finrod isn't wrong uh, in saying this, and we can show that, and we can even have you know people notice this, right? Um, but it's not; it's still too early. It's not there yet, and we know this to be a mistake, essentially. That Gothmog, this is this is Gothmog's blunder. But of course, we also know that it's Gothmog's blunder that Sauron has uh, sort of lured him into, right? And, um, but the good guys don't know this. They don't know about the divisions among their enemies and what's going on there. So they think, some of them think it's just a sign of the enemy's weakness and their own strength. So some of them are like, this is going to be easier than I thought, right? And others are thinking, like, it's, this is a trick, right? That, uh, we're being lulled into complacency, uh, deliberately by the enemy that was way too easy and should not have happened like that and since it did like we need to suspect it so that will be one reaction uh, that people will have and I would think that Finrod would be among those who would say that and probably Turgon would agree with them because again they're they're fording up right um, so they are expecting that things are going to get worse uh, than they are they've been warned about that right by Olmo so they definitely uh, um, they definitely need to need to do that. And yeah, Tony, you're right. Uh, Finrod needs to remind everyone that Morgoth is the mightiest of all the dwellers in Ea. Yeah. Let's not forget who we're dealing with people, right? Um, uh, this, uh, this guy's kind of a big deal. Okay. All right. Good. So, okay. I know I spent a lot of time on this slide, but it's not, it's not, uh, in an indication of how much time we're going to spend on every slide. Wanted to think about the, um, um, the oh, big, sure. Yeah, no, it's all good. I wanted to think about the big uh, the big picture here because that's super important, I think. All right, so let's go down to um, uh, nitty-gritty. So suggestions for episode one. Okay, so these are suggestions. These, so Maria's put these together, many of them her suggestions, some of them uh, all, uh, drawn from other suggestions on the discussion boards as well. So begin with a slight time skip from the season finale, the Noldor already established on opposite sides of Lake Mithrim, which with much tension between them. The primary storyline should be meeting Círdan. The tension of the opposing Noldor camps is the backdrop for that. Fingolfin reforges Ringil. Uh, Fingon rescues Mithros. Yeah, um, agreed. That's a lot to happen in one episode, I think. Um, the one thing I'm most uncertain about is Círdan... Uh, that is, uh, okay. I definitely want Fingon to rescue Mithros in episode one. That that seems to me like the real center of that episode. Um, if we can bring in Círdan and Celeborn, right? Celeborn was with Círdan when last we saw them. Um, if we bring in Círdan and Celeborn in this episode, I'm not sure that we'll be able to do justice to all of those things. And if we have to ditch one, I'm ditching Kierden and bringing him in later rather than bringing him in in this episode. I want that. I don't want to, I don't want to shortchange Fingon and Mithros. That's the really big deal. And the reforging of Ringo is kind of cool. Uh, I, 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 I do want to maintain a, the, the forging of swords is like an interesting little running motif in this season, actually. Right. Um, we're going to have the, the forging of Ringel. We're going to have the forging of morally questionable swords by Aeol. Uh, we're going to have the forging of Narsil happen in this season as well. Um, 
I, I, we need the, we need to have the forging of Aaron Ruth as well. I think we can make a kind of a big deal of that Thingol's sword. Um, like, where does it come from? Who makes it and when? Like, I don't know, but we need to figure that out, right? Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, we've got, um, um, we've got a bunch of important swords, uh, that are made during the course of this season. Um, you so, know, apart from just the general fun and coolness of having all these uh, epic weapons forged, the 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 running motif of um, weapon forging is kind of an interesting contrast to the other overarching theme of uh, forgiveness and working together. Yes, potentially it is. Though, of course, the cool thing about starting off with Ringo here, remember that the forging of the reforging of Ringo is in its way it is a sign of reconciliation remember that Fingolfin breaks his sword uh, after the kinslaying right you know this is like Mm -hmm. his sign of his own penitence uh, for the kinslaying right and his so he's uh, all upset and he's uh, so we've got tension already between him and the Feanorians and he, because he's penitent and they're not, right? And they decide to leave them, you know, and so, you know, they're going to decide to leave him behind and everything. But the breaking of his sword is a really important sort of symbolic moment, both of his, of his penitence for what he's done, um, but also of his kind of breaking with, like, you know, I, you, Feanor, are fine with what you've done, right? You continue to embrace this path. I am leaving this path. I am not following, like I'm following you, but I'm not following you anymore, right? That's kind of the moment for Fingolfin when he breaks his sword. And so the reforging of his sword, having the reforging of his sword coinciding with the reconciliation of the two factions of the Noldor at the rescue of Mithros seems to me to fit pretty well, right? Um, and, uh, um, that's true. Good point. So, but but it is nevertheless, I mean, but Dave, I agree with you. The kind of tension there works really well, right? Uh, yes, on the one hand, this is a reconciliation, right? But to say, like, I am, ref- like, this weapon, uh, you know, this weapon, this instrument of death. Because remember, swords were the big deal in season two, right? The forging of swords was a major moral turning point for this for the Noldor. Um, because it was, like, you know, the first of the things that we hear about them making who's like the only function of a sword is killing folks, right? There's just, there's like no, nothing else you can do with a sword um, apart from, apart from fighting. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, so it's still, there are still those moral questions to it, right? So the like, hey, let's reconcile, let's all work together and let's all get together to swear vengeance on our enemies is like questionable, right? Um, and can certainly give us pause there uh, and uh, suggest that there's perhaps some... And of course, the we know the destiny of Ringil, right? Like, what is the culmination of the plot line that begins at the reforging of Ringil? The duel with Morgoth, right? So Fingolfin's ultimate destiny, his throwing away his life in battle, is, uh, you know, that makes all kinds of sense, right? You know, again, Dave, thinking of what you're suggesting about the the sort of, um, you know, sketchiness of his um, uh, or the moral questions that would attend this reforging, right? Yeah. 
are borne out. Um, because although Fingolfin's death is awesome uh, and valiant, it's ultimately sort of pointless. Sort of pointless. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's ultimately. It's a. It, I mean, I mean, yeah. I mean we hate, We don't really want to say it that. I guess we don't want to say it that way. But it's. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't appear to accomplish anything tactically. Yeah, I mean, it's it is one of the things that we. I mean, he dies a good death, and a valiant death, and it's wonderfully heroic. But ultimately, it's also it's it is not entirely unrelated to suicide, right? I, I mean, yeah, like this, the difference between Fingolfin's death and I mean, think about the difference between like Fingolfin and Gorfindel's deaths, right? Or Ecthelion's. Um Gorfindel dies for a purpose. He accomplishes something with his death. He sacrifices his life so that others might live. Fingolfin doesn't do that, right? Um, yep. So, yeah, I mean, it's his his challenge of Morgoth is uh, uh, stirring and wonderful and epic and heroic and mad as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and that's going to be that's going to be uh, a very delicate dance that we have to dance when we get there. But that is not quite yet. Um, but but anyway, Dave, that is to say, with Ringo, we've got lots there. Okay, but hang on. So we're not we don't have to actually discuss every episode uh, in intimate detail here. But but so it's but thinking sure. about the connection between Kirden uh, and the Noldor, I'm not quite sure about this. So here's the here's the over here's the here's the overview here. Okay, so. Uh, first contact, introducing the conflicts for the season, the Sindar Noldor and Intra Noldor. That is the advantage of bringing the Sindar in, like this bringing Kyrdin in in the first episode. Um, but again, I could see bumping that to episode two. Have, have the first episode focus on the Intra Noldor conflicts reconciled through Fingon, although not perfectly, uh, through Fingon's rescue of Mithros. And then have episode two be the one where we have the emphasis on diplomatic connections in various ways, both Angrod going to Thingol, uh, Karanthir being himself, and uh, and then we, we, or you know maybe we begin that with Kirin's first contact and he brings Angrod back with him, maybe right. Um, uh, I'm 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 still not kind of completely sure about that, but um, yeah. So then, all right, Mithra ceding his claim as High King and Fingolfin crowned as, as High King. Yes. That's not a lot for an episode, but there's plenty more to do. See, this is, again, I think, uh, I feel like this episode overview reflects what I was talking about before, right? Like, there are fewer kind of episode-filling events, I think, Um as again, look, episode four, uh, Galadriel becomes Millions' pupil in Doriath, and Aeol hates his neighbors. Yes, yes. Again, neither of those things exactly events. Um, uh, I think it's. I, I really do think this is going to be more about thinking about overarching storylines and figuring out how, okay, at what pace we want to develop them and how we want them to be kind of overlay each other, um, than having sort of particular events that each episode focuses on. Um, so then this would get us to Merith Adarthad, that is the Feast of Reconciliation, by episode five. 
Um, which is fine. Uh, I think that's good. Hmm. Okay. Um, episode six, then we have the, so, so next comes the, the rumors, the truth of the rebellion of the Noldor coming out in bits and pieces. Uh, and this, of course, uh, this would be, uh, strongly assisted by Sauron who, let's not forget, has to first learn it, right? The bad guys don't know what happened. Um, so we have to have one of the plot lines be uh, Sauron through the help of his um, minions, right? With a little help from Thurin Guetho and probably Tevildo. Remember, Tevildo is his torturer. Um, so uh, uh, Tevildo and Thurin Guetho would help him to uncover the truth about what happened, which means he's got to have some, he's got to take some Noldor prisoners, right? Who? So here's another thing. Um, we already have enough characters. We don't need to add more characters. Uh, but we need people to be taken captive and released as spies. So like we, we need a, a selection of elves who can be captured and then who can either escape or be released or be you know, like some of each uh, in order to uh, be sowing discord among the rest of the elves and also maybe Sauron himself going in disguise and that kind of thing. Um, so, so that's fine. Um, who? I think we need named characters. I think we need to care about these characters. At least indirectly. That is to say, like... It, if we're not going to do this with any of the main characters, and I, I know that that would be challenging in most cases, I mean, it's not like we can have, you know, Fingon captured and tortured and released. Um, you know, there most of the primary characters, like the grandsons of Finway, are not going to really be uh, candidates for this. Um, but, uh, but we have uh, like wives and sisters. We have um, <laughs> Kelleborn, says Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Lincoln, I was so ready to dismiss that out of hand, and now I'm like, wait a second. That would be interesting. No, not Elmo, Hakon. Forget it. No, Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Zach, no, I'm definitely thinking we can have somebody's wife. Um, one of the things we were going to have, of course, one of the like minor things we were going to do, um, Oradreth, gets married to um Ordreth gets married to a a a, Sin, a, a Sinda woman um we could she could be one right she could be one um uh what about Ordreth himself yeah, and no, Karita, I'm not I'm not wanting to just harsh on the wives. Like I don't want to just be like and now like, you know, all the female characters are getting captured and tortured. I'm just I'm just thinking about because again, it's going to be hard to repurpose uh 
the primary characters who we know are going to be actors all the way through, right? What about Ordreth? What about Ordreth himself? Okay, yeah, let's start here. Let's think of named characters who are candidates for capture. Um, Marie suggests Angrod. Hakon suggests Ecthelion. Now, we have to imagine three different outcomes, right? Three different outcomes uh, for the elves who are captured. Outcome number one is that they legitimately escape and are, like, hardened by the experience, right? Another outcome is that they are dominated by the will of Sauron and Morgoth and become quislings, right? They become collaborators with the bad guys and spies, uh, doing their will and sowing and contributing to sowing the seeds of discord. And there's, like, a third middle ground where they just become, like, scarred, like Gwyndor was, right, uh, in the Turin story, um, where they, uh, they're just, like, shattered as a consequence of, the, of, of what happened. And they can still, in the end, kind of do Morgoth's will, but they're not active collaborators. Um, so, um, Chris, that you're thinking exactly the lines that I was. Ordreth... Ordreth is such a limp fish in the published Silmarillion. I mean, he is a wuss. Um, just, like, constantly a wuss. He never does any... I mean, he's he's a complete cipher, right? So what if we make Ordreth... Uh, he, he'd be in, like, the Gwyndor category, right? Uh, and, of course, Gwyndor is one of his people. And I'm not saying it's exactly the same, right? Um... Um, but Hakon, absolutely. If we're gonna if we're gonna do this with Ecthelion, we have to show like this is where this is this is how Ecthelion became like you know the Elvish Rambo, right? Uh, because he is now like uh, Ecthelion is now like the no holds barred warrior, right? As a consequence of his experience uh, in uh, uh, in Angband. Um. Yeah. So, Chris, exactly. Uh, Oradreth would not be a collaborator, but it would make him damaged. It would make him timid. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, no, Lincoln, there would be some... Some would be Noldor. There has to be at least one Noldor, right? Because somehow Sauron and Morgoth have to actually learn about the kinslaying. Right, um, so there has to be at least one Noldor who is taken. Um, hey, Tony suggests Cyros. I don't think Cyros could be taken because he doesn't fit any of the profiles. I mean, like he's a fop among other things, right? He's just like a snooty, conceited, stuck-up prig, and you, did like you don't get to be a stuck-up prig after that kind of experience. I don't think. Um. Yeah, and you're right, Marie. He wouldn't leave Doriath either. So, only the only Doriath elves who would be candidates would be those who travel, and there's kind of few of them, right? Maglor and Beleg primarily, or uh, Maglor, um, Mablung and Beleg. I'm gonna do that a lot, by the way. Uh, uh, mix up Mablung and 
Maglor's names. I do that all the time. My apologies. Uh, but anyway, um, Mablung and Beleg, and to some extent Celeborn, in as much as we want to send him off on missions too. Um, ooh, David Attlee has an interesting idea. Um, what about um, what about uh, uh, Caranthir? Hmm. Oh, I like it. Yeah. The problem is, I mean, yeah, Hakan, you've got the oath. So, like, he wouldn't be an active collaborator, right? The idea wouldn't be that he, like, he now secretly serves Morgoth, and that's why he's such a jerk. That's too simple. And it, and as you say, Hakan, it doesn't work with the oath. Um, he would still believe he's doing his own thing. But it might help to explain why he's as hard as he is without just being like, well, Caranthir was just born a jerk and he's going to stay a jerk until the day he dies. Um, but I don't know. I'm kind of reluctant to make any of the sons of Fanor captive because that's too... Morgoth would really pounce on that, I think. Um, uh yeah. Yeah, and Marie, I agree we, we it's this is why it's so hard to choose a named character because we do need notice that all the people that we've suggested so far we want to be either in category 1 or category 3, right? We want them either to be hardened and strengthened by it, um like we're suggesting possibly Ecthelion, or we want them to be broken and weakened by it, like perhaps Oradreth, um you know, the sort of the the Gwyndor model, but we we haven't suggested a single active collaborator, right? Somebody who really goes over because that's really hard to do among the named elves, right? To find somebody who, because they'd have to be expendable, right? Somebody who doesn't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Right, Marie, we do have Mithros already captured uh, by Morgoth, it's true. And Mithros is the is he's model one, right? You know, I mean, he's the one who is escapes and is hardened by the experience and his, you know, resolution is increased and his strength is even increased. Um, his strength in, 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 in battle is increased. Um, so yeah, Mithros is the sort of archetype of captive category one, right? Um, but Hakan exactly, if he captures, if Morgoth captures any others of the sons of Feanor, it's like, right back to the cliffside to get stapled in again, right? I mean, he's going to make a big example of this. It would it would be a huge deal. And I think it'd be too big of a deal to uh for for him to just release them all. Um Yeah, but see my Glenn... maybe what if what if what if Sauron has changed his uh his uh has has suggested a different tactic. Um yeah. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, it's possible that because uh... recall that you um, you know recall that in our slide deck we were emphasizing sort of the impact you know the 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 action of Thrandor. Um, yes. Um, and and sort of what impact that might have on Morgoth, and maybe he decides he doesn't want to call attention to himself again. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I could see something like Caranthir is captured and they decide, like, 
Morgoth and Sauron decide, they should like let him think that he's escaped. You know, maybe they're, like they're just convinced. Like, actually, we need to release this guy back into the wild because he's way too useful to us. Messing up the other side, right? Um, and but it's. I mean, Carnthier is also like the most rash of all of the sons of Fanor. So you could easily imagine him spilling the beans, right? Um, you know, Magor's not going to, or, you know, Mithros rather, isn't going to talk. He's not going to give him anything about what happened or what they're trying to do or anything else. Carinthir would, right? He'd boast and he'd talk about what they did and everything. And then afterwards, Sauron could be like, hey, let's, um, let's arrange an escape, right? Let's let him break out and think that he did so by his own strength um, so that he will, like, be, you know, cocky. And, um, but yeah, we definitely want this guy out among the rest of the elves because we don't even need to prompt him for anything. He's like, you know, this guy, this guy's a problem, right? Oh, let's let him go and be a problem, uh, for, for everybody else. Um, that would be kind of interesting. And it would provide them with a source of information and it would fit with Carinthier's character as like, the one with like no restraint who spills the beans. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Marie, you're kind of right about that. Marie says for someone like Carinthier, you'd send Sauron in, in disguise to talk to him over drinks. You wouldn't capture him and torture him. Well, that's true. Um, that's true. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, this is why I was, you know, thinking before of wives. You know, it's easier if we have unnamed characters who are close to the named characters, right? So, I because here's what I don't want to do. Uh, okay, there are two things I don't want to do. One, I don't want to have the collaborators and spies just be red shirts, right? I don't want them to be like nameless elves who are like somewhere like we see them off, like played by extras. Like we don't, I don't, I don't, it's, we're not going to care, right? I, we should care about what's happening uh, here and we should be kind of invested in this. Um, uh, um, so... Yeah. Um The other thing I don't want to so, so one thing I don't want to do is red shirt elves. The other thing I don't want to do is um invent brand new characters. Like so that we have to do like a George R. R. Martin thing, like where we introduce a minor character and like spend an enormous amount of time building their whole backstory just so that they can like be killed and do one small thing, right? We don't have time for that. Um so we I want I want them to somehow fit right into the picture. Now Hakan suggests Argon. Um 
Brief background, Argon, of course, is not in the Silmarillion. He's one of those characters that Tolkien invented much later on. Um, you can read about him in the history of Middle-earth, but he's not in the published Silmarillion. And he is the uh, uh, the fourth son of Fingolfin. The fourth child, rather. Um, uh, the other sibling who doesn't make it into the published texts. Uh, so that is Fingon, Turgon, Arathel, and Argon being the fourth one. My problem is I'm leery to bring in too many of these. Like, even just with the characters that we have in um, the published Silmarillion, it's plenty, right? We have a lot of characters. Um, so I kind of think I, I kind of think we need to bite the bullet um, and do this and and have have this happen with a named character. But anyway, we can make, we don't have to make this decision right now. We can we can see how this develops over the course of time. But my question is, I think that what we really need to do is like look at all of these characters, you know, really sternly and say, does he what role does each one have? I think we need to be able to answer that question. I'm not about just like wanting to eliminate characters for the sake of simplifying alone. But um, I think we need to make sure that each character has a point. If there's not a point to each character, if there is not a, 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 a really a specific role in the story that each one of these characters is destined to play at some point or other, there's really no point in having them. Um, yeah. Hakan, we don't have to have necessarily an active traitor. Um, the person could be a tool. In fact, I think it would be really kind of cool if the person who was the collaborator doesn't even know that they're the collaborator, right? We don't have to have somebody who is Maeglin, right? Who is like actively betraying them. Because in some ways, of course, I wouldn't want to ruin that, right? Maeglin is the like greatest traitor of all time, right? In the first age. So I would kind of like to ha- make sure that, um, to make sure that Maeglin's actions are worse than any of the other elves ever do, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I'm blanking on the exact phrasing. What's that awesome phrase that Tolkien uses in the fall of Gondolin? Is it this, the spell of bottomless dread? Isn't that it? What Morgoth, like the whammy that Morgoth puts on the elves that he captures? In the spell of bottomless dread, right? We totally need the spell of bottomless dread, right? Um, yeah, yeah, spell of bottomless dread. That's what I thought. So somebody is under the spell of bottomless dread, and they can be broken and haunted, and everybody else just thinks they're they're like messed up, like you know, they need some recuperation time, right? Ooh, what if, what, ooh, okay. What if we have somebody who has had the spell of bottomless dread placed upon them and they are still hearing Morgoth's voice, Marie, in their minds, right? What if someone is even, like, uh, appearing to him in his dreams? Uh, Or what if somebody, like, what if Thurin Gwethil is coming to him, like, by night, right? And what what he believes to be, so he thinks he's having nightmares, but in fact, he's like betraying secrets and uh, getting instructions and he finds himself doing things. I mean, there can be, he he should not be in his will a traitor. 
um, but still doing stuff. And he could maybe be healed, especially if we have it be Oradreth, right? He can get better, but still never be the same, right? Still always be kind of, this could explain why he's so diffident later on uh, and so tractable um, because he doesn't trust himself anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. We'll think about this. We'll think about this more as we go on. But again, I want to challenge us to be thinking all of our elf characters, all of our named characters, who has like, everybody needs a job, right? What is their job? Sooner or later, they need a job. They need to be playing a particular role. And, you know, if they're not, they're candidates for capture as far as I'm concerned. Um, okay. Anyway, moving on. We get the ban, Thingol uh, uh, responding to the kin slang by banning the Noldor language. Um, yeah, well, let's keep going for a second. Okay, then the Dagor Aglareb comes. Uh, orcs are no more use here. I love that, Marie. That's very good. Uh, uh, of course, being a semi-quote of swords are no more use here, Gandalf's comment in Moria, right? Uh, orcs are no more use here, right? Um, which means, of course, if that's happening in episode eight, we need to have, you know, the Sauron Gothmog thing happening in the episodes building up to that. The dreams from Olmo come in cha- in episode nine, then, Turgon and Finrod. Um, then they're going to be starting to build, right? Um, we've got the Petty Dwarves. See, here, I'm not sure we get a whole episode on Petty Dwarves. I'm thinking we need to be uh, distributing that to some extent. I think it's one of those threads that we're going to want to be coming back to um, at various points because it's going to be it's going to be relevant um, for uh, uh, different moments uh, in the story. Um, Building of Gondolin and Nargothrond. Yes. And we talked about that is a connection to forgiveness and healing. Um, Turgon moving into Gondolin. Yes. And uh, and then Glaurung attacking. Agreed on the overall shape, but again, how things are actually split up. So again, notice, just looking at this outline that, that I'm just showing here, right? Um, if you look at the actual events, stuff that happens, there's a small list, right? The rescue of Mithros is an event. Um the abdication of Mithros is kind of an event, but it's more like a particularly significant moment of conversation and negotiation among all of the conversations and negotiations that are happening. I wouldn't really count that. The um, the rescue of Mithros. Um, the Marathadarthad is an event. Uh, the ban is an event. That's a that's a moment, right? Uh, the Dagor Aglareb is an event. The built the 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 dreams is an event. Um, the move to Gondolin is an event. The attack of the dragon, uh, of, of the, you know, at the end of the, of the dragon is an event. Um, but that's, you know, kind of it, right? Um, again, that's not to say that nothing else happens. We have lots and lots to do, but it's of a different kind. It's all, I mean, and I think it's all going to be shaped over the course of the season rather than like episode by episode really. Um, so that's going to be more complicated. I agree, David. We do want the Petty Dwarves to be established um, earlier, I think, because we need them in Nargothrond, right? And so that has to be uh, Finrod's relationship with the Dwarves needs to be part of what's going on there. Um, in fact, I'm even wondering 
Maybe we make the dreams from Olmo earlier. Maybe the dreams from Olmo happen even prior to the ban. They could happen in episode six. Why are you thinking that? Well, for one reason, to give more time to establish... um, Gondolin is going to take a while to build, right? So having the perception of much time passing and they're finally moving into Gondolin, I think, is not a bad thing. Nargothrond is going to involve... like We've got to figure out what happened with the dwarves, right? The dwarves lived there. Meme remembers with great bitterness that the petty dwarves are booted out of Nargothrond. Do you want to put that on screen? The booting out of the petty dwarves? Yeah. Heck yeah. Do we we think that, is that the the, the Noldor? Are they the ones who did it? Yeah, they are. But like, again, I see this as part of, as part of Finrod's outreach program, right? He's, (laughs) (laughs) that is with the dwarves. Because remember, the dwarves, our story of the petty dwarves is that the, the petty dwarves are like exiled dwarves. Right. Uh-huh. They're like they're criminals who have been. So remember, the whole theme of forgiveness works there with the dwarves as well. Right. The dwarves are like, no, these people are outcast. They're dead to us. Um, so. So I'm thinking like how this would go. Right. Finrod, you know, Finrod's a nice guy. He's not going to come in and be like, oh, dwarves, let me exterminate them, you know, and and colonize their lands. Like probably that's not Finrod's response. Right. Um, so. Finrod is going to be like, oh, hi, dwarves. Yeah, so I'll talk to the, I'll like talk to the dwarves, and he will have heard about the dwarves that, uh, you know, were like, because again, Finrod is connected with Thingol as well, right? So he will have heard about Norn and their relationship with the other dwarves that we saw in season three. So he's going to be like, oh, hey, great, I'll talk. Maybe I'll send for this Norn chap. Right. And Norn can explain the whole like business, like who are these dwarves and maybe he can help us. Right. We've got this dwarf ambassador handy. Right. So I'll go to Thingol and I'll be like, hey, Thingol, can I borrow your dwarf ambassador? And then Norn is going to be like, oh, yeah, no, those are not our people. Those people are dead to us. And he's going to be like, oh, uh, huh. OK, what do we do now? So, you know, we, we get the whole thing working here. Um, uh how exactly this happens, I don't know. Um, that is, what happens with the petty dwarves in Nargothrond, and how does that transaction end up happening? I have the faintest idea. I keep talking about, like, the dwarf plot, and have, I don't know what it is yet. That, I'm, that, that's not clear to me at all, and now is not the time to decide that. The point is, there's stuff that needs to happen there, right? Um, this whole transaction with Finrod and the dwarves, and perhaps actually my use of the word transaction there suggests the solution, right? Um, That is, he pays them. We also know Finrod is loaded, right? Uh, He's got more treasure than anybody else. So, um, so I'm thinking he's going to buy them. He's going to buy Nargothron from them. Um, Oh, I like it. uh, But Meme is going to, like, not get any of the proceeds, so he's going to still feel ripped off. Um, and when there's treasure involved, maybe the, the, the mainstream dwarves are like, actually, maybe we are interested after all. And the other dwarves are going to be, the petty dwarves are going to be like, we thought we were dead to you. And anyway, there's a lot we can do there. Right. But nevertheless, okay. Anyway, whatever. The point is there's stuff that needs to happen with Finrod and the dwarves here before we can even start the building of Nargothrond. Um, 
So I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm not, um, I'm not a hundred percent set on, uh, pushing the dreams up earlier, but here's another question. The fact that we've always done it this way doesn't mean it always has to be. But for all three seasons that we've had so far, we've had a a sort of climactic turning point in the middle, right? Uh, A turning point which has really been sort of the pivot of the season. Um, It was the burning of the lamps in season one. It was the the release of Melkor. Really the sort of the shifting of the scene to Valinor and the release of Melkor from prison uh, in season two. It was the burning of the ships in season three. Um... There are, seems to me three candidates uh, for that role here among the things we're describing. Four. Four candidates. Um, uh, the one which seems most natural in a sense is the Dagor Aglareb. But I actually, it's the one I like least. I mean, having the battle that happens in the middle of the season be the, like, pivot point outwardly seems to make sense. But the Dagor Aglareb is not actually, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a, I don't know, not a blind. It's a, uh, it's a false, right? I mean, yeah, it's, it's not really, it's not as big a deal as it seems to be. Right. Um, uh, so I don't, um, I don't think that that works. Um, so that that's one, but again, I don't think that's a great one. There's the dreams from Olmo, um, is, is another one. There's the ban, Right, Thingol's ban of the Noldor, and there's potentially Merith Adarthod, but I think that's probably uh, too early. But like the Feast of Reconciliation, conceptually, is another thing that could serve as sort of the pivot point, something that we're building up to for the like the whole first half of the season is about like, come on, everybody, we can get along, right? And then boom, the Merith Adarthod, the Feast of Reconciliation, is the culmination of the early efforts, right, to get everybody to get along. Um, I could see that. And then the ban would then be part of the decline uh, in the second half of the season. Um, But I don't know. I um, hmm. So we've got Chris and Hakon are both um, Chris and Hakon are both suggesting the ban as the sort of turning point but how though how does it serve as such I don't see how I mean there's no question that it's a momentous event but I don't see how it serves as the pivot of the story Um, because what pivots exactly? In season one, the destruction of the lamps was so important because that was the moment when Melkor broke with the rest of the Valar, right? We were like trying to work together and even Melkor believed that maybe they because you know maybe he could get them all to see sense and obey him right um, you know maybe all of the Valar would agree to share his vision and accept him as their lord as his natural and appropriate right so that was still kind of the place where Melkor was in the first half of season one 
the burning of the you know when he burns the lamps he kind of burns his bridges right that's where the lines are drawn clearly Melkor over here and the Valor over here and that's literally then represented geographically right by the separation uh, between Valor, uh, Valinor and Utumno that we did in the second half of the season so then we still have in the second half of the season attempts to reconcile across that gulf and by Manway at least to bridge that gulf and then of course in the end we find that it's not so the, what happens at the end of the season is sort of the fulfillment of what we saw at the turning point in the middle right when the gulf is unbridgeable and war is declared. So that really works as a central pivot point for that whole season in that way. In in season two, the release from prison of Melkor um, is obviously changes the entire game, right? I mean, that's the, um, you know, the question is, the the question of season two, right, is where do elves really belong and what should they be doing? Like, what are elves called to do and how can they fulfill their calling? And we see the call to Valinor and some of them choosing to stay. But of course, the whole question of what are you, like, where are you to be, like, where, where, where may your heart rest and what should you be doing gets complicated by Melkor, right? And Melkor takes those doubts and questions and turns them against the Noldor and brings about the, you know, we have, instead of just a, us trying to find our place and figuring out what we're doing in the world, um, Melkor turns that into unrest, right? And discontentment and ultimately rebellion. So again, that moment is the turning point of that central theme, uh, and the second half of the season really flows from it and uh, uh, is, is, in a sense, almost like the inverse of the first half of the season. The first half of the season is about everybody finding their place, right? Different people finding their place in different places until we get to Valinor and everyone, the rest of them are over in Valinor and everybody's, everybody's kind of content, right? Everybody has found the place where they belong. And then the second half of the season, you know, people are getting discontent and wishing they could be somewhere else. So again, that works. Clear pivot point. Um, the burning of the ships works differently, right? But again, with the burning of the ships, we have this is the arrival in Middle-earth, you know, now uh, that this is the final turning point for Feanor, right? This is where Feanor is, is, is completely over the edge, right? When he burns the ships and uh, uh you know, as I've always argued that the burning of the ships is the worst thing that Feanor ever did, worse even than the kinslaying. Um, it's sort of the final atrocity, which shows not only that he's um, uh, that he's you know willing to do horrible things in order to pursue his end, but also that he's really quite mad um, in thinking that uh, he can do this without the support of his brother and more than half of his people. Um, so that, you know, the first half is, is kind of, you know, with the, the story of the Noldor is sort of building towards that. Um, the burning of the ships doesn't serve as neatly as a pivot point for the whole season in that it's not directly connected, of course, to the story, uh, uh, the Balerian story and the story of the Sindar. Um, but, but still it kind of works. My problem is Neither the Marath Adathad nor the Ban individually kind of tell the whole story, and neither of them really serves as that same kind of pivot, right, when we're thinking about the shape of the season as a whole. Um, if the Ban, if we treat the Ban as that kind of pivot, then we need to show how 
like the trajectory is one of like increasing cooperation and harmony. And then we get the ban, you know, oh, then we find out about the ban and then we get what? Decreasing harmony. Um, Okay, wait, there's one way I can think about this that makes sense. The only way I can make sense of that as the pivot point. Hmm. Okay. What if thinking about the terms we were talking about earlier on, reconciliation and forgiveness, right? What if the first half of the season is focused on reconciliation? Let's all work together. Let's all get along, right? Let's just agree not to fight. And indeed, let's even uh, achieve the high goal of agreeing to fight together against the enemy rather than against each other, right? Can we all do that, people? Right? That's the theme. And the, uh, Merith Adderthad is the centerpiece of that, right? Hey, it's the celebration of us all deciding not to fight each other. Isn't that awesome, right? Great. Um, then the truth is revealed, and we know that it's not just a question of reconciliation. There's, there's forgiveness that needs to happen, right? Um, the challenges to working together, the challenges to living in peace, the challenges to uh, uh, coming together as like a unified people against Morgoth are even greater than we knew at the beginning. Um, so that the first half of the season, again, is focused on reconciliation, and then the second half is on like, okay, really mending the breach, healing and reconciliation that needs to happen beyond, uh, healing and forgiveness that needs to happen beyond mere reconciliation. Um, I could see it working in that way. But if we did that, the dreams from Olmo would have to be kind of, and the response to them, that is the building of Nargothrond and Gondolin would have to be more explicitly tied to that forgiveness theme, which is already what I was thinking earlier on, so I guess that would work. I guess that would work. Um... We could even work the dwarf plot with Finrod into this as well. That's what Finrod wants to do. Finrod doesn't just want to... You know how Finrod wants to get rid of the petty dwarves that are living in Nargothrond? He wants to reconcile them to the dwarves of their homeland and repatriate them back to the Blue Mountains. Because that's what they really want anyway, maybe. Or some of them do. So he's going to try to work out a reconciliation between the two. And maybe he's partially successful. But then there will be some, like Meme, who are going to... I don't know. Just a thought. Just a thought. Okay. All right. I think we can do that. I think we can do that. Any other thoughts that you guys have about these kinds of general shape and trajectory of the season questions? This is looking pretty solid. It is. Oh, wait, here's another... We, th- we, origi- I, like, we started, began the podcast saying that basically, in not so many words, not much happens, but not actually happens. a lot happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, oh, wait, one thought, though. I, I think I want to switch the Dagor Aglareb and the ban. Let's have the Dagor Aglareb happen first. Um, the Dagor Aglareb can be the culmination of the reconciliation, right? Like the heart of the reconciliation is the Merith Adarthad. So the 
whopping victory by the elves and the Dagor Aglareb would seem to be like, hey, look, it's reconciliation working out, right? Everything is peachy. See, I said, didn't I tell you if we all work together that like, you know, there's no, no, Morgoth can't possibly stand against us if we all work together and then bam, look at that. It happened, right? This is a plan in action, right? This is what victory tastes like, people. See, uh, and then then the news leaks, right? Then we got the kin slaying, and it looks like having having looked like everything had come together and been really beautiful. Now everything after that is really falling apart, right? Or begins looks like it's going to really fall apart. So that the dreams from Ulmo would then have a role in being like, okay, let's let's kind of somehow get back to where we were. Um, yeah, yeah. Hakan is suggesting the people who escaped from Angband could do so during the Dagor Aglareb. Yeah, possibly. Possibly. I gotta think about that. There's much more I need to think about with uh, the uh, um, the plans of Sauron and the folks who are captured. Okay. All right. Let's think, think, uh, think a little bit more about some of, the, some of these storylines we've already thought about, so we'll just be touching on some of these things. Um... Okay, so villain storylines. Um, we talked about the Sauron Gothmog thing, which I think will work out really well. Um, the capture of elves, which we'll dis- which we'll think about more later on. Um, the making of dragons, which, uh... hey, so Sauron has been the guy who's been doing this kind of thing already, right? In one sense the dragons are like the ultimate version of Sauron's werewolf project, right? Um, so what if Sauron kind of considers himself as like the pioneer of the technology that Morgoth perfects in the dragons, right? So he, Sauron wouldn't necessarily be directly involved. It would be Morgoth's project to make Glaurung, but Sauron kind of feels like you know, he kind of held the patent right on the process, uh, and that and that he can kind of like tell himself that uh, Morgoth is uh, uh, following in his footsteps. Yeah, that kind of works. Um, now, big question is the awakening of men. Now we know that Morgoth is going to be involved in the corruption of men out in Hildorian. We had decided in the last episode that we shouldn't show that. We don't want to show that on screen. We want to have men show up kind of haunted by their past and with vague stories. But since we're showing the villains, we might want to handle that. Hey, okay. Morgoth should go away because we know Morgoth leaves himself, right? Morgoth should go to tempt the humans personally, which means we don't show that, but we show the fact that Morgoth is absent, Maybe Morgoth is absent during the Dagor Aglareb. And so it's during Morgoth's absence that Sauron manipulates and goads Gothmog into attacking. Uh, And so then the Dagor Aglareb happens and it's a complete catastrophe from the bad guy's standpoint. And then Morgoth comes back and Sauron's like, he did it. Man, like, Gothmog totally blew your whole orc reserve while you were gone. uh, And it was incredibly lame. And I told him not to do it. Right. Um... Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, good. 
Hakan was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I think that that would work really well. So yeah, I love the idea of having Morgoth absent, and we're not going to say exactly what it. Maybe there'll be some dark hints about what he's doing. Um, but let's have him go himself instead of sending Sauron, because then Sauron can be kind of running things in his absence. Um, and then when he comes back, when Morgoth comes back, is when he kicks off the dragon project, right? Um. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. That'll be good. So the capturing of elves and the enthralling and releasing them can be Sauron's strategy initially, right? Um, but then again, maybe that Morgoth comes back in time to, uh, you know, to put them under the spell of bottomless dread. Uh, you know, so again, he has like some... Uh, uh, he's going to be, as he generally is, a little bit more hardcore than Sauron is uh, in his approach there. Okay. All right. Um, the Kinslaying reveal. Okay. So, by the way, um, I what I'm doing here, obviously, I'm not trying to resolve all these things. My goal here in thinking through these different storylines right now is just to kind of flag stuff we need to think about, right? Uh, stuff that we're, you know, decisions we're going to need to make later on. Um, so the Kinslaying reveal. Galadriel and Angrod are involved in telling the main parts. Yes. There are rumors floating about which I think can be circulated by Sauron and his servants, either in disguise, himself in disguise, Thorin Gwethel in disguise. I think Thorin, he and Thorin Gwethel should both be able to disguise themselves as elves and uh, go about spreading rumors. Um Celeborn. Here's what I like about... Here's what I like most about having the primary theme of the season be forgiveness. It gives Celeborn something to do. I have an answer to the question... Why does Galadriel marry this chump? Right? I have an answer to the question. The answer is because he forgives her and he helps her to forgive herself. Galadriel needs him personally. It's not what he accomplishes. It's not because he's so awesome. It's I mean and he he is wise and he's older than she is and he remembers Quivienen and and you know, she will respect him. But it's painfully obvious that he's not her equal, right? Um, So why does Galadriel marry down? And that kind of personal backstory, right? Like, that he is so important because he... Celeborn deserves to be her husband because he's the one who helps her through this, right? She is, this is, this, I think this is one of the core stories of Galadriel through this whole thing. She is still haunted by the kinslaying, right? By her own feeling of guilt, by her mother's death, right? She is haunted by this and she can't forgive herself. And she's going to end up confessing uh, to Celeborn. I think 
she confesses the whole truth to Kel. She tells part of the truth to Melian. I think she confesses the whole truth to Celeborn. I think Celeborn is the first of the Sindar to know about the whole kinslaying, but he won't. Doesn't tell any. He doesn't tell Thingol, because like he's like this is about going. He's keeping her like private torment private, right? He sort of keeps it in confidence when she tells him about it, um, and he immediately sees that like his job, like what he needs to do is to help her through this. Um, so he does help her through this and they end up getting married and their marriage is the moment of like healing for her, right? This is when she becomes, um, sort of whole. Um, yeah, no, Hakan, I think she tells him before the ban. I think he finds out before Thingol does. Um, I think that would make it even more dramatic, his choice, right? Because she's going to be thinking. She's going to be like, you're going to have to tell Thingol and like, and, and I'm going to be the traitor of the Nold. Like, so, you know, so she'd be even fe- feeling guilty about confessing it to him, right? Or anyway, there would be more at stake for both of them. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I do think we can have Kelborn not, just not say anything. I, in, in that situation, I totally think we can. Um, it's like it's like kind of like a confessional sort of moment, right? Um, and he doesn't want to. It would be a personal betrayal of Galadriel, right? If he goes and tells Thingol, and what he banishes her, like, oh yeah, that's a lot of progress in like helping this, you know, this 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 woman through her problems, right? I'm gonna blab on you and and get you exiled, right? No, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't do that. Um, he wouldn't do that. Um, no, how can they can hesitate? I, their marriage can happen after the ban. Their marriage can totally happen after the ban. Um, in fact, I really kind of like that as like an example of Celeborn standing up to Thingol, right? Um, you know, Celeborn's like, okay, like, you know, Thingol, we've been friends for a long time and stuff, but you know what? Like, I'm going to up and marry Enolo, right? I'm just, I'm just going to do it, right? Um, I don't know. I kind of like that. So, um, yeah, I think her confession predates the ban, but Celeborn's proposal of marriage postdates it. Like the final healing and reconciliation doesn't happen until afterwards, but her initial confession happens first. That's what, that's what I'm thinking. But anyway, so I think the Galadriel-Celeborn relationship is all tied up in the reveal of the kinslaying. Um, right, oh, Hakon wants them to be in love at first sight, though. You know, sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's fine. I'm, I'm cool with that. Certainly. I mean, I think that Celeborn should be following her around like a little puppy dog from when he first sees her. I mean, there's no question, right? There's no question that Celeborn is absolutely, um, uh, is absolutely uh, in, in uh, you know, head over heels for Galadriel from the very beginning. And she will come to respect him and to be grateful to him for like helping her, right? Um, and she characterizes her own he- inner healing and peace of mind as a gift that she has given him. So that when she says later on that Celeborn is a, is a giver of great gifts, we know that that's still what she's remembering, right? Yep. Now this works. This so works. This so works. Okay, more. Luthien. Okay, totally agree with Marie here. This is important. 
right? Okay, so she remains in Doria throughout the first season. Now, the challenge is, I agree with Marie's point at the very end there, it is essential that we work her into the Doriath plot. She can't just be singing and brushing her hair and waiting around for Baron over this next two seasons, right? We need a role for Luthien. Um, agreed. Agreed. Uh, what is that role? I don't know. I do agree that we do need Dairon's intentions towards her to be clear. Um, and you know, I remember we were talking in the last season that there should be this sort of like expectation, like Dairon and Luthien should be like two peas in a pod. They should, it should be like, you know, they're eventually getting together and marrying should seem completely inevitable to everybody, like not even worth discussing. Um, everyone assumes that that's sooner or later going to happen. Um, but... Um, so yeah, that can, but that's not enough, right? Obviously, we can't have Luthien just be like, "Hi, I am the like female lead who is uh, whose character is completely invested in the men uh, who are interested in me." Um, we need her to have some kind of independent life in these two seasons, um, but it's super hard because she never goes anywhere or does anything in the Silmarillion until Baron comes along. We made a start with having her be involved in repelling the spiders when Sheila attacked um, in season three. Uh, Hakan, I agree. She probably doesn't like the ban. We can make her outspoken against the ban. Um, she might think that even her mother doesn't go far enough. In spe- you know, I, I mentioned the ban as the first in- instance of Thingol not really fully taking to heart what his wife tells him. His daughter can be even more outspoken against it, perhaps. Um, agreed. Do we want her to leave? Can we bring her to the feast? Can we bring her to the Marathon? I mean, is there a good reason for us not to? Having her stay at home seems to me one of the problems. Because, let's face it, not too much happens in Doriath. And if we want to put a lot of focus on the Galadriel and Celeborn story, they are going to be a huge part of what happens in Doriath. So Luthien is going to seem like a, a an afterthought to some extent. She's going to play second fiddle to them. Um uh, Thingol might object to uh, Luthien attending the Marathad or Thad Marie. I agree, but, you know, Thingol does that, right? That doesn't mean people listen to him. Um, but, yeah, I... Um, seems to me like the... Seems to me like the fix for uh, for Luthien is to have her go places and do things. Yeah, have her be involved. Um <sighs> But we have to think more about her role. More about her character. Like, who is she? What does she want? What is she into? Um, what's her stand? Uh, yes, it makes all kinds of sense for Thingle to be, like, protective of her, right? But if her... 
if him forbidding her to leave and her wanting to go, I mean, that's an obvious anticipation of what's going to happen, right? So, like, when, when Fingal is like, all right, kid, that's it. I'm locking you up the tree, right? When we get to that in season six, it will seem like the culmination of the kind of tension that's been going on. I don't want to make Luthien just the rebellious teenager of the elvish world, though. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure what to make her do. We'll have to think about this. But here's one other thing that I want to think about with Luthien. What's the relationship between Luthien and Galadriel? They've got to have a relationship, don't they? If Galadriel comes in and she's like, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to like sit at the feet of Melian, right? I'm going to be like a little Melian disciple here. Uh, what is, like, are they rivals in some sense? Are they, like, wouldn't that mean that Luthien and Galadriel either have to be rivals or BFFs or something, right? I mean, they have I to think relate to each a, other. I think this is a promising direction uh, for, for, for giving her something to do. Mm-hmm. Also, this is an excellent opportunity to pass the Bechdel test. Right. <laughs> a conversation between Luthien, Galadriel, and Ormelian, not involving men. Yeah. 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 Well, Luthien, or uh, rather, Goadriel and Melian do pass the Bechdel test uh, in yes. Silmarillion. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Uh, so they yeah. talk. They don't talk about men. They talk about murder. <laughs> they talk about murder. Exactly. They talk about politics. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I really. I'm. I'm. I, I'm not quite sure. I don't know what the right direction to go in yet. But I am. I'm actually like all of a sudden very excited about a Luthien Galadriel like relationship and storyline yeah yeah no, pretty it, cool it seems to me like an obvious possibility right and think about mm-hmm. this right who arwen is the parallel to luthien like all right arwen is the second luthien and we've got arwen living with goadriel so like you know think about goadriel in the sense of like okay so um my granddaughter is like the second luthien right so here i have a chance to like do it again right you know maybe mm-hmm. uh anyway it would be uh uh I agree. I think there's a lot of potential there. I don't know what to do with it either, but that's got to be, it's, it's, it almost has to be a thing some way or another, the Luthien Galadriel relationship. And we need to, but I feel like I, I can't figure out how to develop that until I know more about Luthien, right? We've really got to think about Luthien's character. Anyway, we've got Aeol, the Aeol storyline. Um, now, he's not a huge prominent character, but the thing about Aeol's character is that there is a... On the one hand, we need to set up his character uh, for one major reason and one minor reason, right? The major reason being obviously setting up the story between the the relationship between him and Aravel, which is not going to happen in this season, but would happen in season five. And the minor reason is that we need to introduce him so that we can get Anglachel the sword and know where it comes from and why it's sketchy so that when Beleg says, oh, hey, I want that sword, we should all be like, no, Beleg. We don't even need Melian to say her piece before we're all like, not that sword, Beleg. So, uh, you know, we need to set up Aeol. Uh, and we flirted. No, we, we was more. It was a pretty heavy flirtation with including Aeol in season three. Uh, he was the one that we kept like putting off and putting off, and then we ended up just bumping him out of the season entirely. Um, but clearly, it's time for him now. Um, but the other thing about Aeol, apart from those two story reasons, like we need him to be the maker of Anglachel and we need him to be the father of Maeglin, we also like he's a an awesome foil 
I mean, he thematically he's important, even though plot-wise he's not super important, right? So um, the way that we, I was already talking about playing him and his little dark kingdom off against uh, uh, Turgon and his little light kingdom, right, is is already one way. With Am- bringing in Amros is another, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of point in that triangle. I think is 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 interesting. Um, I. And and he works super well with the uh, forgiveness theme on the season because he is super bitter. Like he is, he is like the example. Like you know, if you if you end up if you if you don't repent of what you do wrong and you don't forgive people for wrongs done to you, you end up like ale man. Like who wants that, right? Um, so yeah, and Hakan, I agree. If we're going to have a dwarf storyline, he's got to be involved somehow. He's the one that's most connected with the dwarves. So I think that he can also play a role in the... And remember, he's also resentful against the Noldor, right? He resents the heck out of the Noldor coming in and claiming the lands. Um, uh, He's like the petty elf, right? He's like the meme of the elves in some ways, right? Um, So I think he's got to be involved in the whole Finrod situation, right? Finrod and the dwarves, like, Aeol needs to be involved so that he can resent Finrod and the Noldor for it, right, in addition. So... Um, yeah, Tony was just suggesting he's got to be involved in turning the petty dwarves against Finrod. Yeah, yeah, I think he he's got to somehow kind of mess that up. He needs to be somehow involved. So there's stuff for for Aeol to do um, uh, that we need to do uh, with him. Uh, so, yep, lots of things to do. Do we want to have a whole AL episode again? I don't think so because I think that his stuff is distributed. Like it's going to be connected to different parts of the story. I think. Um, so I don't think we want them all at once. I think we need to spread them out. Hakan says he's like memes legal advisor. Yeah, really, really bad legal advisor. And okay, Galadriel. We already talked about Galadriel uh, specifically. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so when does their marriage happen? I think their marriage happens near the end of the season. I think it's... In fact, we could even have that as, like, the... Th- the th- So, the sort of focal points of, like, f- forgiveness. We should end the season with the signs of hope, right? So we have, like, reconciliation, let's work together, and hey, Dagor Agalorab, this is really panning out. And then we have, ooh, but we have much deeper problems, right? And we've got, we, you know, there needs to be forgiveness, and so, okay, how can we patch these much more serious problems that we now have now that the whole kinslaying thing has come out into the open? And we have already Nargothrond, I was suggesting Nargothrond and Gondolin serve as, as kind of uh, beacons of hope, right? Examples of like, here's how we can move past this. This is what, these are two different examples of what real forgiveness looks like and what, what moving forward looks like, right? Galadriel and Kelborn's marriage can be a third, you know, leg to that particular stool, right? Um, that also is what forgiveness looks like, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, Murray's asking about Ale. Do we need to know where he came from or how he knows the dwarves? Yeah, well, he was there. We need to kind of connect the dots a little bit, right? Because we had him involved in uh, uh, the, you know, episode, season two, episode three, right? Back in the conflict, uh, in the debate about leaving Quivianen. So um, we need to, we need to um, 
we need we need to to do that and yeah how kind of exactly then their honeymoon is going to be interrupted by the by the attack of the dragon or it'll happen while they're gone right they return from their honeymoon and they're like what we we leave and a dragon attacks what the heck um yeah exactly they're off on their honeymoon when glowering attacks it's all good okay all right um uh, some notes on some other characters to introduce Ale, right, talked about that. Gorfindel and Ecthelion, yeah. In the, we're going to meet them in Nevrast. Uh, don't know for sure what they can do. Having Ecthelion captured and escaped would be one way to introduce his character, of course. Um, uh, Glorfindel, of course. Both of them should be obviously close to Turgon and very heavily involved in the Gondolin story, so there's plenty of time to develop them some as we're um, moving forward with the Gondolin plot in the second half of the season, at the very least. Um uh, Zirak. Zirak is the uh, one of the dwarf characters we're talking about, the smith. Um, yeah, well, there's we got to think through some dwarf characters because we're going to, in addition to Meme, whom I think we can, uh, you know, uh, is it stretching a point too much to introduce Meme? I mean, I know time's going to be passing and he'd be pretty old, but, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Can we get away with it? We could just have Meme be the... At the very least, we need, like, Meme's dad or granddad or somebody, right? I mean, we need, you know, Meme to... We, we want to have a direct connection to 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 Meme here. But anyway, whatever. Um, uh, a grown-up Idril, right? We've seen uh, we've seen juvenile Idril uh, in the crossing of the Helcaraxa. We need uh, Idril to be all grown up there at the feast. Um, uh, yeah... Um, I ignore his wife. Well, I want to think about that more. I want to think about that more. I might want to cut her, but we'll see. Um, Oradreth's wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, it's Angrod's wife. Yeah, okay. That's what I thought. I was, I was puzzled there for a second. Yes, Angrod's wife. Um, uh. Yeah, Angrod's wife, who has a name, yeah, it makes her a candidate for uh, a captivity in Ang in Angband in my book, but we'll see. Um, yeah, and you're right. Yeah, we do need reasons. We need to figure out the Sindar who move out because we're gonna have we we must have a bunch of Sindar move to Nevrast, right, and live with Torgan, and then in, eventually move to Gondolin, and we're gonna want the Sindar who move up to Hithlum too. So we do need some reasons behind that. And I think that those can be first half... Well, Neverast obviously has to be, but I think both of them can be first half of the season stories. Um, okay, so here's my question as we're closing up here. And Dave, I'd be interested to hear what you think about this. Great. What if... What if we approached this season differently? What if instead of going episode by episode, we go storyline by storyline? Think through each storyline individually. Like, have one session per storyline in which we really flesh it out. Like, the arc of that particular thread over the course of the whole season. And then have a couple sessions at the end where we hammer this together into an outline on the whole. Because I'm kind of feeling like it's going to be, and I know, David, you're right. I mean, I am thinking of our script outlining folks. And if we don't have, like, it's hard for them to start working on that in advance if we don't uh, 
like they would have to follow the same kind of pattern that we're following in doing that. Um, I don't know. I'm just thinking going episode by episode, it's going to be, I, I feel like we're going to end up backtracking a lot, right? As if we, if we don't, cause it's going to be hard to consider all of these storylines in parallel as we go through. Um, it just seems to me, I'm, when I think about this season, if I if I just think about it, like, okay, if I were writing this story, like if somebody tasked me personally with coming up with the screenplay for this season, that's how I would do it. How I would do it is I would think through each plot line to say, what do I want to happen? And then I would say, how are these things going to, how can we shape these things so that they best fit together and overlap and build up and, and, and work together best? Um That's how I do it. And so that's how I'm inclined to do it when we discuss our way through. Just because, again, there's so little. I mean, I can episode one makes sense. Right. But like from episode two on, I'm already not sure which plot lines we want to focus on. You know, I mean, like just to take a few just going back there for a second. Just taking a few examples. Where is the uh, line here? Okay. So we're talking about episode one, the rescue of Mithros, episode five, the feast, the Merith Adarthad, right? The Feast of Reconciliation. A bunch of stuff that needs to happen in episodes two, three, and four, right? And if we just kind of, we need to develop the, we need to start the Galadriel and Kelborn story. We need to start the Galadriel and Luthien story. We need to get Luthien involved in stuff. We need to start the Ale story. That should probably begin somewhere during there in that early stage. We need to work on the Theonorians and the people of Fingolfin. That can't just be all solved in one episode, right? Um, and because anyway, we've got like then Caranthir and everybody smacking Caranthir afterwards. And there's still lots of stuff to do there with the, we've got to establish Amras, right? As the, uh, as the conscience of the Fae and Orians who then leaves at some point, right? We need to um, establish the bad guy storyline. Morgoth has to go off on his sabbatical and Sauron has to start his project. Elves need to start getting captured and tortured uh, during this session so that they can be released no later than the Marath Adarthad, right? Maybe one of them shows up to the Marath Adarthad and that's like where we introduce that or at the very least right afterwards, but they've got to be... Um, They've got to be, uh, uh, you know, they've they've got to be, you know, worked on uh, by the bad guys during that time. And of course, we've got the scheming throughout this. We also have the scheming of uh, of uh, like the manipulation of Gothmog, right? That also needs to be happening there during that section. So when it when we sit down to say like okay now let's talk about episode two like how do we know which of those threads we pick up when we don't even know all the details of what like when we haven't even decided what Luthien's character is going to be like yet or you know it's just it's hard for me to see how we'd proceed episode by episode as we go through that you see what I mean so what if we it's did this? definitely it's yeah, definitely so, tricky like I I think we I think we definitely need to break as much as possible, break the arcs, um, uh, the overall arcs out first. Um, 
before we start going episode by episode. Yeah. I mean, because I, I don't think there's any winning here. Yeah, I think if not. we go, I think if we go storyline by storyline, we're gonna invariably we're gonna end up doing that. We're gonna we're gonna be backtracking to the extent that we're gonna be trying to align the storylines. We're gonna be like, okay, now this is where so and so. Yeah. You know, like. To, the minute we're talking, discussing a storyline, we're like, okay, this person interacts with this other character from a storyline we broke last time. Yes. Um, we have to start trying to align things. Yes. And we're going to be continually realigning and revising things as we develop the, the other storylines. Yep. Yeah. 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 It's, it's just, we're just out of luck. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's just the nature of this, of this, uh, you know, we don't have, the big difference between this and most of the other seasons, and I would include season one. I mean, Nick was kind of teasing me about that when I was saying this season is so different. And he was like, as opposed to season one, which was chock full of events. And it's true, you know, season one was similar too, but even there, there was a clearer direction, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we had, we had a, like a more unified overarching trajectory of the season to work with than we do here in season four. Um, so let's um well let's see what you guys think of this. We have we have a buffer. Um and I say when I say you guys I mean our script writing team and and other folks on the discussion boards because moving back up to my here. The next in the next session uh uh which is 2 weeks from now on uh November 16th I want to talk about the frame we haven't talked about the frame at all. So we're going to talk about the frame next time. And I'm ready to talk about the frame completely from scratch. Who's the teller? Uh, you know, who's the primary character of the, of the frame and what's the plot and scope of the frame right now. I have zero idea. I have no clue. I I'm coming in with no investment whatsoever in the frame. I'm like ready to start from scratch on the drawing board. Um, so really interested to hear people's suggestions on the frame. Um, then maybe, we can kind of revisit this. Well, before we then go, after we talk about the frame, will be time to sort of then move ahead with other issues for uh, the season and maybe starting to work our way through things. So we have a buffer in this way uh, to give people some. So if um, you guys on the discussion boards and the script outlining team can kind of talk amongst yourselves and see what you think, would you rather us try to go episode by episode at the very great risk of are getting to episode four and saying, okay, we want to actually go back and completely change episode two, because now that we've worked out this other plot line, we see, we really wanted to, we, we really want to have planted that back in, back in episode two. Uh, um, so that, that it, I think that's going to almost inevitably happen that we're going to end up backtracking continuously. If we try to march through episode by episode, or are, would you guys be willing to be more flexible, have us go storyline by storyline and then uh, be working it out or even, you know, leaving the outline team themselves to be kind of putting that together. Maybe that's how it works. Maybe you guys do that. Maybe we work through the storylines and leave you guys to plan out the episodes. And then you guys can suggest the episode, the full like episode outlines. And then we can talk through the episode outlines like we do and criticize what you've said, because that's much easier for us, frankly. So, um, I kind of, that's a kind of an attractive idea. If you guys can be working out the outlines as we go, thinking through the outlines as we go, uh, and we'll just go storyline by storyline. Yeah. 
I kind of like that idea. Anyway, see what you guys think. Let us know what you guys. So next time, we'll start with that. We'll just kind of say what we're what, what the plan's going to be, uh, and then we'll talk about the frame. Okay. All right. Sounds like a plan. And so be thinking, of course, about the frame too. Who do you want the frame to be? Do we want to do a Hobbit frame? We haven't done a Hobbit frame in a in a while or ever, actually. Ever, yeah. We've had two Aragorn frames and 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 one Arwen frame so far. Uh, uh, do we want a, a Hobbit frame? Do we want a Sam frame? Do we want a Bilbo frame? Uh, do we want to go back to Arwen for this one? Do we want to? What do we want to do? I don't know. Do we want to do we, something? We totally definitely, different? we definitely got to find. We definitely need to find a character for whom the the theme of forgiveness um, uh, will resonate. Exactly. Yeah. It's got to. It's got to be about the theme. It's got to. It's got to. It's got to fit. Um, yeah, those are the questions. Okay, so maybe it's maybe it's Sam forgiving Ted Sandyman. <laughs> I like it. Uh, and Narwin on Twitch suggests it should be a Tom Bombadil frame. <laughs> Tom Bombadil <laughs> forgiving Goldberry for dunking him in the water, uh, and then the marriage of Goldberry and Tom Bombadil is the parallel for the marriage of Galadriel and Celeborn. I like yes. it in Arwen. I think it totally works. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you want like a dynamic character who really grows and progresses, Tom Bombadil's your go-to right there, right? I mean, you, you got That's true. Absolutely. No more dynamic character than Tom Bombadil. Um, the guy who never even changes his jacket. Anyway, never mind. Okay. So... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, uh, uh, for uh, uh, this discussion here today. This was r- super fun. I'm I'm pretty excited about this season now. I, I'm 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 uh, there's lots to do here, and it's a totally different kind of challenge than we've had before. And I think that's going to be really interesting. So uh, I'm excited to see what we produce. We're uh, this is like some of the uh, this is the most uncharted territory we've been in since season one, right? Where we're you know, filling in like the human story behind, you know, that not human, of course, that's a poor choice of term. the personal stories behind of Beleriand and its realms. Right. That's going to be, uh, that's going to be super the personal fun. stories. Behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, um, uh, Nargothron dwarf thing. Yeah. I, I like the idea of it. I like the idea of there being a purchase and it, and I, I really, and I really think we need to make it, like we we should we should take a page from from America's sordid history, yeah, and have it be a case where they're just totally screwing them over, or at least that's how it looks to the dwarves, right? Or yeah. at least to some of yeah. them, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think there should be some like good intentions that are misconstrued, but then there are other people who don't have good intentions. Like we totally need to have Carinthier hunting the dwarves, um, uh, Carinthier and Kelgorm hunting dwarves. Um, contributing to the misunderstandings. No, so much material there. So much material there. But anyway, all right. I'm going to let everybody go. Uh, see you guys in two weeks on November 16th to resolve our plan for uh, our strategy for the season and to talk about the frame. So thanks, everybody. We're really moving rapidly. Oh, we? yeah. No, this is good. This is good. This is good. As we are wont to do on Cell Phone Project. Yes. Excellent. So thanks for listening, everyone, and Godspeed.